Good morning, everybody. My name is Adam Sturgeon, and this is the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. I just wanted to start this off by uh, letting everyone know that I really appreciate all the uh, listens. Uh, We have about 2,500 downloads in just a matter of a few months. I started this podcast in uh, January. The first recording was actually in December uh, with my friend Seth. If you uh, tune into uh, episode two, you'll hear that interview with uh, Seth Barnett. And uh, he's now out in Tennessee um, living a second life now. So, I mean, it's... It's amazing to see what what has changed in just a few months. And um, when I started this whole podcast, the idea was the fact that we want to take time to to sit down and hear people's stories and really just dig in to find out like how people have come to through this life of service and where they started their lives out. And each person I speak to has a different, obviously a different story, a different background. And it's just interesting to hear like how we've all come to this point of um, really just learning and growing in our experiences. And I really appreciate all of those who have come on the podcast so far and where this podcast is going. Um, every day when I when I get a text message from someone who's listened to the podcast or an email, it, it just really uh, gives me this hope that there is more more people that are seeing the light as far as I, we need to do more to help each other. And I hope that each and every one of you that's listening to this gets something out of it, um, even if it's just a little snippet. So um, today's podcast is going to be fantastic. We have uh, Carlos Lozoya, and he's a retired Customs and Border Patrol agent. He worked in California, Southern California, and then moved on to uh, Arizona where he finished his career out there. He was a canine handler. He had a, a multitude of experiences within the uh, Border Patrol Agency, and um, his uh, his start really began in uh, um, Northern California. And it just I spent so much time talking to Carlos about his family life. And it was so interesting. It's almost like I forgot to talk about the job, but you'll hear that um, as we get into that transition later on in the episode. I just hope that you guys all get something out of this and uh, continue to listen, to share the episodes. Uh, follow us here on on either YouTube or on Apple or Spotify, wherever you're listening to your podcast. Make sure you share those episodes. And uh, if you throw a shout out there on Instagram at, at Let's Grab a Cup or at AP underscore Sturgeon. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it, and I hope you guys all have a great day. All right, let's get on with this episode. Welcome to Let's Grab a Cup Podcast. This is where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency. We provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon. So why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. Well, hello, I am Adam Sturgeon, and this is the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. Today, today I'll be talking to uh, Carlos Lozoya. Carlos is in Arizona, and he uh, has a company called Milagro Metalworks, where he does uh, makes metal signs. But before that, um, Carlos was a, a U.S. Border Patrol agent starting his career in Southern California and uh, doing 25 years where he actually moved over to Arizona and did uh, finish out his career there. So uh, good morning, Carlos. How are you doing? Good morning, man. Good so I know you, you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Um, so I got to know you. I kind of met you through Instagram. I mean, I saw that you're doing all these signs and I'm, and started talking to you, and I thought it was really cool. So thank you for making – I don't have it up today because I don't have a you know the good wall behind me. This is all fake, but – um, that sign is pretty, pretty cool. I need to get some studs and, uh, and hang it up. So I appreciate right you making on, that. Um, so we kind of had a little snafu this morning because time zone situation, like you're right. Arizona doesn't change time zones. Apparently. That's right, baby. Go Arizona. <laughs> and I'm still in California. So, 
Um, let's talk. Let's start off with uh, where you uh, grew up. So you're in Arizona now, but where did you grow up, and how did you end up in law enforcement? Um, I grew up in uh, Northern California, in the San Joaquin Valley. I grew up in a small town um, called Dixon, California. Uh, I tell people that people have no idea where that is. It's the best I can give you is like uh, UC Davis is basically right down the road from where I grew up. And okay. then, uh, the Bay Area is about uh, about an hour away. So that's kind of where I grew up. Um, getting into law enforcement, well, that's kind of an interesting story. I, I had to think about it for a second here. As I mean, it's got multiple paths to it. Um, um, I remember I was big as growing up as a kid, I was a big, uh, chips, um, just like diehard. I mean, Poncherello and, um, uh, Baker, I just watched them on their bikes and do all this crazy stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's what I want to do one day. I want to be a highway patrol. You know, I want to be on law enforcement one day. And yeah. So that's kind of like how that, that seed got planted. And then, uh, was that show on uh, when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I got to see that growing up. That's you know, that's, that's what I got to see. And then uh, uh, my uh, godfather, my godfather was a uh, in law enforcement. He was a sheriff. Okay. And um, and that's I remember as a little kid, he came over the house in his uniform one time, and uh, I, I guess I was. My mom says I was just tall enough to like reach the bottom of the barrel of his revolver, like 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 in his uniform, I was like pointing it up with my finger. I said, what's this for? And he, and, you know, and he was like, how do you tell a little kid? Like at the, I, I don't even know how old I was, but he's like, Oh, it's to kill the coyotes. And oh, uh, really? that kind of like sunk in my head, you know? So that's, that's kind of like, that's it kind of interesting coyotes, right? Cause isn't that what they, yeah. isn't that what like what we're trying to go after the coyotes? Yes. Yes. And that's- he actually baptized me he, in my, in my baptism. And yeah, I grew up Catholic and, uh, so he baptized me and it's funny. I wrote a piece like uh, I, I can't find it, but it was on Facebook years ago. And I wrote like a little thing. Like I said, f- the irony of the person who's baptizing me would be the person that also had such a huge impact on me, like getting, wanting to get into law enforcement. And uh, I saw him as a source of like, you know, authority and like um, a great role model and something like, you know, commanded all the respect when he'd walk in, you know, it was just something and, you know, left me in awe being a little kid. And I said, that's exactly what I want to do. That's cool. So, and so he was, so he was a sheriff, you said? Yeah. What was yeah, it in, in Dixon or somewhere else? No, he, it, I want to say it, gosh, I, I should know exactly where he was, but I think it's a YOLO. I think it's YOLO County. I think is the name of like the area that he was patrolled. Did he ever uh, like tell you stories about like what's going like real stories or was it all just no I, I yeah no I, I never I never really got a chance to ask him he 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 was very easygoing like very laid back and he, I don't know he just when I stopped to think about it I, he he didn't fit like your classic like mold when you think of somebody in law enforcement but he I don't know he was just a great person and just very like easygoing and I said that's exactly and then they ended up. Um, at one point they owned a uh, Mexican restaurant in our town. Okay. And of course being their godson, I got to eat for free. Like all the time I went in there and my mother, my, my godmother, she's, she's amazing. Um, and she would always like, she's just the nicest person ever in the world, man. Uh, I love her. And if she sees this, thank you so much for everything. <laughs> That's great. That's cool. Yeah. So how, how old were you during this age? Like when you were, when he was talking about the gun, like the pistol and stuff like that? Uh, gosh, I think I, I, you know, if I could barely beat the, the the barrel of his gun, I mean, I probably had to be like less than like maybe like around eight or or you know, between five and eight. I yeah. think you know. And so you grew up in this area in Dixon, 
Like, is that where you yes. grew up until you were? Like, yeah, it's basically most people know it as the San Joaquin Valley. Basically, that that area is just very agricultural. Like, I mean, that's all that is. It's very a lot of migrants were moving there at that time and working um, in like the tomato fields, wheat, corn. Uh, from that, the San Joaquin area starts from like Sacramento area all the way down to like Bakersfield. Like, all of that area is considered like, you know, some people call it, you know, the breadbasket or you know, just it's the agricultural, you know you know, Mecca, if you will. So yeah. that's what my dad did. Like, you know, it's my dad and my mom worked in the fields as, you know, laborers, basically, you know, our whole life, you know, and um, when tomato season would start, I, I wouldn't see my dad for like three and a half months. Like I would you really know, come home. But back then there wasn't a whole lot of like regulations on how much, how, how much you could work as far as in a, in a semi truck. So he would work like what he had to work, which was, you know, got 14, you know, 14, 16 hours a day. And I would see him like, just kind of come home. My mom would make dinner. I'd see him in the evening and then he'd leave like at three in the morning, like, and he'd have to drive, like, like he'd have to load up in town. And then we had a local Campbell's uh, factory. So they would go either go down to Bakersfield, pick up a load, come back, dump it at the Campbell's suit factory there in our town, and then have to make that run again, you know, depending on, on how long it took. So, they would do that for like four months. My mom worked at the fa- at the canning factory where they where he was making that. So during that time during tomato season, it was it was it was rough. It was brutal in our house. Like you know, we had to kind of fend for ourselves really really young. Did you have older siblings or younger siblings? I do. I have I have three older brothers, an older sister, and myself. And then I have a, a baby brother. Um, I call him my baby brother, but he's 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 about fifteen years younger than me. So oh really. It, yeah, my my mom and my dad call that a slip. So I was gonna say that. Don't tell me it was an accident. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's so, funny. So was it's it crazy though? Go ahead. It's crazy though because like, you know, in our, in our when I was growing up, like, um, like n- none of our family was in law enforcement. You could say that a, a a big percentage of our our contact with law enforcement was not very good. I'll, I'll say that loosely. Like it was just a rough area where we grew up and, um, you know, the, the police wasn't really like you looked upon. Well, not, not by my older brothers, but my, like my parents respected law enforcement. My, my dad, you know, was very law abiding and he always, you know, told me like, Hey, if, if you ever have, if you come into contact with somebody that's in law enforcement, like, Hey, you do exactly what they say. You don't ask any questions. And I don't want to hear of you being in any kind of trouble. And, that kind of really stuck with me that my dad, you know, told me that. So did your, you say your brothers had some issues. Did they have any issues with the law? Oh yeah, man. Like man, my, my, um, my middle oldest brother was in and out of prison, like from the age of probably like 16 to like, like his late thirties or forties. Like, I mean, we're talking like heavy, heavy prisons, like, you know, Soledad, Tracy, I think he was like one step away from like going to San Quentin for a long time. I mean, he, it just, just, and, uh, all of those things were, um, you meet him, you meet anybody that meets him to date. Like he turned, he totally turned his life around. Like, but it took a lot to get there. But when, when we were growing up and talk to anybody and say, Hey, you know, um, so-and-so's brother. And he'd be like, yeah, he's a great guy. And then that's all you would hear is he's a great guy. But what would happen is like, you know, the, you know, there were substance abuse, alcohol abuse. And as soon as those things kicked in, that's when all, that's when all his trouble would start and not just him, my other brothers too, as well, you know? And, um, so I saw that and my mom just like scared 
like the the living like you know crap out of me like to not don't follow in those footsteps like make sure that you don't get in any kind of trouble and she went overboard my mom was brutally brutally hard on me and my sister man we're talking like she would whip like anything that i would do wrong man i'd get the belt i'd get a chancla which is like a like a a, a, like a flip-flop uh, <laughs> uh light you know the lamp cord um i mean Jeez. you name it flies water man yeah. like it didn't matter I, I told her you know i told i i make fun of it now i make light of it now and i and i told somebody it's like dude my mom beat the brown off my butt and i go literally like and i remember someone asked me one time like a while back and they said do you ever resent your mom for being so hard on you and i said no not at all i called her up on the phone like after they asked me that and they were like in the room and I said, Hey mom, how you doing? It's like, Oh, nothing. You know, we're talking in Spanish. And, and I said, Hey, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for, for whipping me and being so hard on me and uh, getting down on me and just like really pushing me and pushing me like relentlessly. I said, because I wouldn't be where I am without, without you doing that. Right. And, and uh, I don't know if it's, I think that's a hard thing for people to grasp. Like nowadays, like I think, uh, people don't understand like that having very strong upbringing like that, like prepares you for like a lot of, adver- you know, a lot of things that you're going to come up with. I was wondering if you're going to, like, I was kind of curious about that as far as like the idea of parents, you know, in that, in that age was, were treating their kids differently than we're treating our children. And are you yeah. seeing a different, even like with your kids, are you seeing a difference in like how they behave and which like, you're like, I wonder if they, if it would be different if, you were to, you know, be stricter or harder or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if you're strict with your kids or not, but I am, I am, I am. I've been accused of being sometimes too hard. And I always go back to like talking to my daughter who's 14 and my son who's seven. I always say like, you guys wouldn't survive one day in my life as a kid. I said, you guys, you guys have no idea like how easy and how good you have it. Right. And case in point, like, you know, I've had, I've had people come over. I've dated people that had, you know, a similar age kid. And, you know, this kid was like completely disrespectful to his, his parent, you know, telling him that he hated them, that he wished that they were never alive. And I'm just like, I'd have to walk out. I'd have to walk out. I could not hear that. I'm just like, I'd walk back in and I'd say, if I said that, I'd, I'd say it in private to the, to the parent. I'd be like, if I ever said that to my mom, I go, my mom would have knocked the teeth out of my, my mouth. I go, not even no questions. She would have hugged me afterwards, but I can guarantee you she would have beat me down for doing yeah. that. And I yeah. said, I said, people nowadays think that um, kids, you know, need to be like, I hear this term a lot, like, oh, they need to have their voice and they need to like express this. I, I, I get it. I get that to some extent. Like I, I definitely am a hybrid. I don't think that I'm as hard as my mom was, but that parent that had that kid would tell me your, your kids are wonderful. They're the most beautiful human beings on the planet. And I said, you know why I said, cause I am not afraid to get my hands dirty. I'll, I'll go in there. Like my son was defiant for a, a, you know, just a short period where I had to spank him. I had to spank him and, you know, and, and I, I was hard on him and people that would see that would be like, question me like, Hey, that's, that's probably a little excessive. And I go, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to, what I, what I went through and uh, my daughter too, you know, like I've been tough on her and I tell her, I said, Hey, I'm not going to be here forever. Like at some point you're going to have a, you know, a a person that's going to confront you 
want to take advantage of you, of you or push you around, I go, you have to stand up for yourself. So that's, that's kind of like, that's, that's my mindset. And yeah, you're trying, you're so trying to build strong kids. I, for sure. Yeah. For and sure. respectful. And you want them to be respectful. And I think that's my biggest issue. Like my kids, I know the same thing. Like they'll be, they're very respectful when it comes to like other adults, you know, they're, and which I, I'm glad. And I think that has to do with the fact that we keep, you know, we, I would say we keep pushing it on them. Like, Hey, you know, please. And thank you. Like we're obviously like putting our, our emphasis on that. And, uh, but then sometimes in the house, it's the same thing. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you don't talk to your mom that way. Like we don't, it's not how we speak to each other. Like, what are you talking about? And, uh, I've seen it. Same thing. You said like other kids where I'm like, what is going on? And where I've said something to those kids, I'm like, don't talk to your dad like that or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like, and, uh, I've had someone like some of my close friends or people have said to me, like, can you come over? Can you come over more often? <laughs> like joke? Cause like, cause like, can you take care of that kid? Like whatever. And just because I am, I'm like, what are you doing? You know? And I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is about. Like, I understand that the, the corporal punishment part of it that we changed, yeah. which is fine. I'm not, I'm not into like hitting my kids or anything, but the idea of yeah. like, Hey, let's, you can still be strict, you know, we yeah, can yeah. still be strict. And and if I say like, we're not, this is the punishment. Like we're, this is all gone. Like you guys aren't getting yeah. this, you're not doing this, you know, whatever it is, like that's the punishment. And I, I kind of jumped to, I jumped to like the nth degree. Yeah. Like I think we were going to Disneyland one time and I was like, we're not going to Disneyland anymore. And then I'm like, <laughs> Oh shoot, man. I still wanted to go. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> I do that too. Sometimes like, I'll like draw a line that I have to like go back and like erase myself, you know, cause I'll just like, I'll lose it sometimes. But you know, like my, like my son, I haven't had, thank God I haven't had to spank my son in a couple of years now, but like, but when I would, like I would, I'd go to my room and like, and like, like cool off and just sit there. I mean, God, like, I'm yeah. like, what is wrong with this kid? Like, I don't understand. I go, they have it so easy. Like, I don't know why he thinks he can, you know, say these things or do these things. And then he would come in, you know, he would, he would come in with his head down, like walk into the room. He'd let himself out of the, out of his room and stuff. And his door would be closed. And he'd like, daddy, I just want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for acting like a bad boy and not listening to you. And, and, you know, I could hear him acknowledging like that he was, he was being bad. And that's, I think ultimately like what I want, like, is like, Hey man, there's consequences to acting a fool or doing something that you're told not to do. And then, you know, I wouldn't just be hard. I, you know, he, he would, you know, he would crush me, man. He'd crush me inside. Cause you know, he's, he's so little and admitting that he's done wrong. And then I, then I give him a big hug and you know, like my voice would crack. Cause I'm telling him like, Hey, I love you very much. I was like, I'm doing this because I love you because I want you to be a good person and, um, you know, and I gave him a big hug and I said, okay. I said, I don't want to have to do that. I said, I want you to be a good person. I said, and you can do it. I said, you're a good kid. And, uh, he's been an amazing little boy, man. He's taught me a lot about myself too. You know, like I see a lot of my, you know, very, very young self in him. So when I do that, I, I kind of like not be as hard on him and kind of be more understanding. Yeah. So. That's good, man. I, I like that. You, especially, I like the connection with my kids. Like I can't, every time I, I call, if I call my wife and my kid answers, I'm like, I, it melts me immediately. Cause I'm not expecting a little voice and I'm like, Oh, a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. It's so That's fun. the best. That's the best, man. Um, yeah. so I was wondering, uh, you're, so your brothers were older, like they didn't have the same, almost like a different upbringing. It sounds like, like they weren't getting, they this. did. So, so to, to give you a little bit of background and, and, th- and this, I think played a big part in, and how they grew up. So, so my dad was previously married. So those three older brothers are, you know, my, my stepbrothers. Um, so they, you know, they, their mom uh, passed away. I think she died of cancer. Oh, and, wow. then, and then my mom and dad met 
and then then we were in addition to the family you know then they combined two families and i think that not having their mom in their life and then you know my dad my dad you know at that point in his life he drank like he he was a, a, a severe alcoholic you know and my mom was too you might just you know i think that's seems to be te- uh, tends to be very um what's the word i'm looking for like you see it a lot in like very like low income areas. I mean, um, okay. so I think that, you know, you, you're working, you know, endless hours, you know, you know how it is when in, in life that, you know, some of the biggest disagreements are going to be about money finances, you know, when you don't, you can't make the bills. Right. And, you know, they were killing themselves. I mean, they were out and working, making nothing. Like I, I, I remember I looked at one of my dad's pay stubs and my mom's, and I think my mom was making like, 325 an hour and my dad was making like six something like six seven bucks and i'm like and when i looked at that i saw a pay stubs i mean i think they got rid of them but i was in their filing cabinet like years ago and i found it and i and that really like sunk in my head i said how did you do it mom right how did how did you like she's like well i had no choice i had to figure out how to do it she's like you guys you know i would make a lot of like a lot of beans, flour, tortillas, and um, things that were very low cost to right. make. Yeah. And, and that's that's how we did it, you know, and we got by. And But it also gave me, like, appreciation for their struggle. And I think if you if you don't teach your kids, like, that, those things, I, you're, you're going to have an adult that doesn't know how to appreciate, like, like the, the journey that he, you know, that what it took to get him there. Like, if, like, I, I bought a house now where I live, and, and I, I'm retired. And like, thanks to my dad and my mom, like the first thing I did when my, when my dad got here is we walked to the back backyard and I said, I know this house is in my name. I said, but this is just as much your house as it is mine. I said, because of everything that you did to get me here, I said, and my mom, and as hard as my mom was on me, like she kept me out of trouble, kept pushing me. And and I said, so this is ours, this dream here, this is ours, this isn't mine. And I think that's big for parents because, you know, you work forever. And I think that's ultimately what you want is you want um, your kids to appreciate like, you know, what you've done for them. And and that's what I do for my parents all the time. Like my dad, like my, if you were to ask me point blank, who my hero is, he's my dad. My dad is, you know, my dad had a very, very, almost no education. One of the smartest people I know on the planet, like mechanically he can do anything like he is, he used to be a heavy machinery mechanic. He could weld. He could drive any type of like farm equipment, combines, anything. Just he could do anything. There's nothing he can't do. Like, right. and all of that, you know, to me is like, that's like a man's man. Like to me, like when I see him, I ask him something, man. He's like, oh, he'll like, you know, he puts his hat up like this, and then he like he has a Pepsi, and like he's like, oh, that's easy, man. He's like, he's like, oh, just just go get this, and and we'll make it happen. He goes, you know, he like take a drink and. You know, I could be struggling, like putting something together, like mechanically on a car, like a certain bolt pattern. And he'll walk over and he goes, and he, st- he, he used to piss me off so much when I was a kid, like in my teens, you know, he'd be like, he'd walk over and he's like, look over like what I'm doing. He's like, are you done playing? Are you done playing so I can get in there? And, oh man, I'd be like, ah, you get so mad. And I was like, he'd go in there and like in like two seconds, he'd tell me, he's like, you know, he'd, he'd show me right away how to do it right. I'm like, God, I go, how do you know how to do that? He goes, we have no choice back then, but to figure stuff out. Yeah. And I realized that, you know, like there's definitely a big, a big yeah. you know, change difference, you know, 
So, none, of those, none of those YouTube and Google, huh? Yeah, oh, yeah. That's what I tell him. <laughs> I know. He just like, he, I didn't do it. Fun, <laughs> he makes fun of that, too. He'll be like, oh, what's going Because he, he, he'll, he'll use a little bit of, like, English, but predominantly we only speak in Spanish. And he's like, oh, YouTube. Like, YouTube it. He's like, go YouTube it. And I'm like, and we just laugh. My daughter, too. Like, my daughter loves uh, too. And, and, he, and, he, and he has a – my dad's so patient, man. My dad has the patience of a saint, man. Like, you know, I, I – he took us fishing. I mean, those are the most memorable things that I remember like with my dad is like either working on, on cars with him or him taking me to his shop. Because if he saw me with like idle time, he'd be like, he's like, what are you doing? I was like, Oh, nothing. I'm going to go like hang with my friends. Like, Oh no, we got stuff to do. And he realized that idle time is just, you know, you're asking to get in trouble. Yeah. You know? And he, and he would take me to his shop and we would like, you're going to wash the, the, the front cab of the truck. Shoot, that thing would take like hours to wash, you know? So there, there was our whole day. But I realized that like what he was doing was like giving, like trying to find, to give me purpose, you know, and that, and that, and, and just keeping me busy with him. And man, I hated it. All the stuff that he would try to show me at first. But I've, I've met people that are like, how do you know how to do all this stuff? And I said, well, I've had a lot of random jobs. And I said, like, like, real sucky jobs. I said, I used to change tires as a kid, like in a farm shop. I go, that was like backbreaking. I, I laid masonry brick, you know, cause my parents were like, there was no like summer breaks, man. My parents were like, Hey, you're if, working. If, if once you're out of, yeah, you're working, man. Yeah. You're going to go work. You'll go work with so, so-and-so's friend or whatever. We were out there, man. And my mom, she took me and my sister, like, you know, when you, I, I don't know what age we were, but we, you know, we had to be like maybe junior high or, or just that when you start, your kids start to get to that attitude stage, you know, and my mom goes, okay, we're going to go work in the fields. And my mom took me and my sister, like, it's like 108 degrees, like out in like a dirt field with these hoes. And you have to like, you have to be very precise on how you strike these tomato plants. And my mom took us out there and it took like hours to get to like one end to the other end. And man, after like three days, my mom goes, this is what you have to look forward to. Like, if you don't go to school, you don't get a good job. It's like, this is where you'll be. And I know I, I get that it sounds like she was putting herself down, but I think she was definitely like driving us to be more. Yeah, no, and I don't think she's putting herself down. I think it's almost like, because you always want better for your kids. I mean, sure, even you, like, I'm sure you look at it and be like, hey, you could, I don't even know if you'd want to push your kids towards law enforcement these days, but, um, yeah. you know, like you always want something better for your children. You know, I think that's what yeah. you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And taking care of you guys I mean, she, and also kind of showing you like hey she's working her ass off so you know show some respect show some respect yeah, that's, that, that's, that's crazy so when you're growing up like i know you said you as a kid like you had that like kind of like first inkling with, with like the law enforcement stuff like seeing your your uh, godfather but then, yeah. how, did it continue like did you continue to see that positive thing or did it switch did you change your mind did you how did you come back to like deciding on border patrol um that's it I'd have to rewind a little bit. So when my, when my, my upbringing was, was a very uh, volatile one. A lot of uh, domestic violence, alcohol. um, I mean, it was brutal. I mean, I, I, um, I still have scars from it to this day that I've had to go and um, get, you know, go to counseling for and things that have like cost me in relationships that I didn't realize things that had happened in our home at a such a young age, like affected me all the way through. And the way I, I, when I stopped to think about how did I really get into law enforcement, I correlated like 
my father or my sorry my godfather showing up in a very volatile fight in our house it was a it was a huge you know one of our big fights and i don't know how he showed up i don't know what what who called him or what but he showed up and you know my parents had just got done like getting into it man like physically like getting into it and he showed up and I saw the respect that my dad had for him and my mom kind of just quietly sitting down in like the sofa. And I kind of like put two and two together. I said, Hey, when this, this man in this uniform shows up with this shiny badge and, and gun, like, you know, people act differently around him. And I said, that's what I want. I said, I want to do that. I want to be that, that type of person because as a kid, I had no control in my life. Like everything in my life was a complete wreck, you know, up until like, you know, I was 10. Um, my mom and dad split up and my mom, you know, I guess had had enough with my dad and, and she, 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 uh, put us on a Greyhound with her, um, to Chihuahua, Mexico. And she, you know, hours and hours on the bus. And my dad shows up in Chihuahua, Mexico. Like, I don't know how many, you know, days later or whatever had passed, but you know, he was trying to like, you know, reconcile with my mom, you know, oh. and telling her to come, you know, come back. And then, um, my, my mom said, you know, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to let this, but I'm going to leave it up to the kids to decide. And my dad went to my sister and asked, you know, do you, do you want to like me to come back or do you want to come back with me to live? And, and uh, my sister said, yes. And then, so everything fell on my shoulders. And then he asked me like, do you, do you want me to come back? And I said, um, I said, I don't see you ever again in my life ever again. I said, I never want to see you. If you're going to continue to drink, I never want to see you ever in my life. I never want anything to do with you. And that's what, like, I told him that. And, um, gosh, I, you know, so that, so we ended up coming back to California where we, dude, that's where, heavy. You know, that's heavy confronting your dad like that. That's, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I was 10, I was 10 years old telling him that. And then, you know, so fast forward, like, I don't know, like I'm, 40 years old and I forgot about that whole situation. And my aunt, my, my dad's um, sister was like washing dishes. We're at a party and she goes, do you know why your dad doesn't drink? And I said, what? You know, I was already like a grown man already. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah. Do you know why your dad doesn't drink? And I'm like, I don't know. She's like, because of you. He goes, your dad stopped drinking the day that you told him that he never, that you never wanted to see him again. And if he was going to drink and he did, my dad stopped cold turkey. Like when we went back to California, my dad never uh, picked up another beer ever again. And that's what I admire so much about my dad is like his willpower. Like, you know, like, like not everyone can do it. I understand that, but I also have become hardened by that. Like watching my dad do like, if he really wanted it, he could do it. And that's my dad's mentality. Like, unfortunately my dad is like from a very old school era. Like, when we're driving somewhere, like my dad will be with me and, and like, we'll see someone like begging for money. And like, if they're physically like fit and like, they look good. My dad goes, that's no excuse. There's no excuse for that. He goes, he goes, you, you, you all have decisions. You always have a choice to do something. And their story about how they came to the United States or came to be like in um, Dixon, California is a crazy one. Like um, he told me, yeah, me and my, me and your uncle got on a, a train headed to Sacramento in out of El Paso, Texas. And they they jumped a train, and they were working at a like a a refinery there in El Paso, Texas. So they jump on a train, they end up in Sacramento. They walk up to like they find their way somehow to the unemployment office in Sacramento, and some um, 
I think he was Korean or Chinese guy rolls up in a big work truck and my dad and my, my uncle are sitting on the, uh, on the sidewalk or waiting, you know, like trying to figure out how, how to, how this whole thing works. And he says, Hey, you guys know how to like pick asparagus. I said, my dad goes, I'd never seen an asparagus in my life. And I said, sure. We know exactly like how to, like how to do that. You know, and <laughs> him and my uncle jump in the truck with this, this, the foreman, they drive all the way to this area called Rio Vista. And in this area, there was a, like a subdivision or like a, a migrant camp. It was called Liberty, Liberty farms or yeah, Liberty, Liberty farms or Liberty Island, and it it doesn't exist anymore. There's only, like, just, like, a, a few standing, like, like wood shacks left of there. But that's where they went. Like, so they went there, and they that's where, like, all the all the, the, the Mexican families in our town in Dixon, a lot of them is, were established from that migrant camp there in Liberty Island, and it was picking asparagus. And we're talking, like, brutal work. Like, my dad says, if you were slow – you work twice as hard because you had to pick up the bushel of asparagus of the person that was in front of you on the, on the opposite row, they would put it into your row and you had to keep flipping it to your left. Really? So if, if you were slow, then you had to do twice as much because you had to flip yours and someone else's. And um, so it was like backbreaking work. Like, like all my family, that's how they started. Like, you know, that they yeah. were killing themselves out there. And that's, that's, that's kind of how they became to be. That's know? crazy. I want to go back real quick and say like, uh, the story you said, you kind of, and then you jumped into the next story about your, how they got here, but that impact you had as a child on your dad, that's really powerful. Like anyone like listens to this. Like, I mean, I think I had like chills when you said that, like about your dad, like to sign on the drink based on what you, like, you said as a kid. But it's really powerful. I think they recognize that. Like, I'm sure you have maybe thought about it a few times, but just the recognize the impact you had on your dad because, and it also makes me think about how much influence we have on what our kids see, what we do, and what right. they're actually feeling. And you know, at, at this age, a young age, you know, like what they're feeling and the impact we're having on them. So I just want to bring it back to that real quick. That's a really powerful story, man. So yeah, thank you. Um, like, it's something that. Like even you know, I can even notice like my my eye like water up still thinking about it because it's um it was something like you know our family was com- going to completely explode you know like this this one moment like came down and then I you know being put and and I'm sure people will listen and be like oh you know a little kid should never be put in that position well sometimes you don't have a choice you know you got to make a decision and 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 hard times definitely make strong people a lot of, I I feel that a lot of the things that I had to endure made me um you know, strong willed, very opinionated, like able to like overcome adversity, like all those things. And I think, and having my dad, and not only that, but, and then having my dad, like when I said that to my dad and then my dad living up to that and saying, okay, I, I see where I'm messing up. Like, I know I'm about to lose like my kids. I'm not going to do that. And, and that's one thing that my mom, even to the date, like sometimes we'll have talks out on the patio and I'll say like, you know, you went, you guys went through a lot. Like I said, what, at the, you know, when you were leaving or when you decided to get back, what was it exactly that, that like, you, why would you stay with my dad? And I said, she's like, first and foremost, your dad is a extremely hard worker. Your dad, like, even if you woke up hungover or drunk, he goes, your dad never missed work. He would get up and go to work every day, every day. Non, he goes, the second thing she said was that he loved you guys like so much. Like he, he, he loves his kids. Like with no, there's no, limit to what he he loves his kids and, right. and um my my dad my dad is not one of those guys those men that that say i don't think my dad ever told me i love you 
ever in, in my life, maybe like once or twice. And, uh, um, he, he's not a guy that talks about his feelings. He's not, he's not, he's just not that type. But in contrast, like, you know, when I was playing football in high school and I'd ask him like, Hey dad, I need, I need a pair of shoes. You know, like I need a new, new pair of like soccer, you know, football shoes. My dad would, would find a way, like it wasn't in our budget. It wasn't in our budget to buy those shoes. And my dad would find a way to get it. And then he's like, Hey, you know, um, I got you these. And that like, would like, like, just crushed me. Like I, I had so much respect for my dad. Like he, when he would do things like that, and they were so small, but yet so important to me. Right. And I knew where we were financially. So all of that meant a lot. Did you, yeah, you recognize that at that time, like financially, like where your family was. Yeah. You know, and it, it you know, it was just one of those things like my mom, you know, she would give us like, they were able to give us the bare minimum. I mean, that's it. Like, I mean, just barely making it surviving. And then if you wanted something more, like you had to get a job, you had to get yeah. out and work for it. And I think that's when things really start to change for not just for myself, but I think for people, if, if you have to work really hard for something, like you're, you're going to take really good care of it, man. Like, you know, when, when, when my dad, like when I was starting to get just old enough to drive, my dad got a car from his boss, had a blown motor in it. And my dad goes, I'll fix it. I'll fix it for you. And then, and and you'll drive it. And he ended up fixing the car for me and I helped him and, so that like had such a lasting impact on me. He, my dad, my dad's, my dad has always showed his love by, by actions. My dad does things for you to show you that he loves you. And that's what I admire about my dad. I mean, I think that's important to know that too, like how people show like their, like their, their love or their feelings too towards you. Cause we, we always say, well, my dad, you know, like you said, my dad didn't say he loved me, but this is how he shows he cares. And even now today, maybe, I mean, I don't know if he says he loves you, but like if, or but if he gives you or something, you know, if it's a gift giving kind of thing, yeah. like that's the way that he shows it or the way that your mom maybe show you the way she loves you and the way you show your kids, it's all, it's all like, you know, learn and internal and all these different things. So I think it's important. It's funny because like when my son was being really difficult, like my mom would be visiting, you know, and I said, Hey, what, what happened to the, to the lady that would like whip the Brown off someone's ass. And she would be like, oh, I'm too old for that. now. <laughs> Plus he's, He's, you know, like it's a different time now. And, and she would just kind of like be very like calm and modest about it. And I'm like, oh, these kids wouldn't, these kids wouldn't last one day in my life as you're, you know, and she would just kind of laugh and, and, but you know what, but one thing that was never a doubt in my mind is how much I knew my mom loved me. Like I knew that, like, I tell her this all the time, every chance I get, like, it's crazy. Like I'll call her up and she's just like, she probably thinks like, you know, you're losing your mind or like, why are you calling me randomly to tell me that? You know, and I said, I appreciate the hard times. Like, I, I, I do. I said, I sometimes I'll just find myself, like, working in my shop. Like, <clears throat> and I'll look around at all the tools that I have. And that was one thing that my dad told me at a very young age. Like, man, I would be out there working on a car with, like a, like, a little small box of tools that my dad had. And he could do anything with that box of tools. And I just, like, he said, when you get older, he goes, one thing that's a great investment is tools. Like, tools tools never lose their value and they always make a job easier. Right. And it's something that really like burned in my head. I mean, I must've been like 14 and I mean, I have bought like every chance I get, like if, if, if I need it, if I'm, even if it's just a one, one job, I go out and like buy the tool yeah, yeah. and I don't just buy like just a tool. I'm like, which one is the best? And that's like, Oh, this one. So I go and get it. You know, and, that's you know, I have like this amazing like route I bought. Like, I think I've used it like three or four times, but it's like the best one. And I was like, yeah, like, and, 
I don't know. All that stuff just kind of like sunk in my head. Man. That's funny. My dad, my dad just did so many cool things with all the tools. Like he, he used to have like this, like he had a little bit of tissue in it in his toolbox, and I was like, "What? What is that? Like, what do you have tissue in your toolbox for?" And one day we were changing the spark plugs, like on my car, and then he's like, "Oh, we got to do something else." So I, no, we weren't changing the plug. We were going to do something else, but we needed to put the the motor, what's called top dead center, and you have to have like a little tool to do it. And my dad didn't. He goes, so he pulled out the number one plug and he'd have me like hit the starter like every like for a second. And then he put this piece of piece of tissue in the spark plug hole and then like it popped and it like when it popped the tissue off, that's when you know the pistons at top dead center. And it goes right there. Don't touch it anymore. And then you can move like the timing chain. I, I'm just like, how do you know all the, that's crazy. that stuff, man? Yeah. My dad has a third grade education. Like that's, it's very sad when I think about it. But then I stopped being sad really quick. And I said, you know what, man, you, you did all of this with that, with so little, and I am so proud of you. Like, my dad grew up extremely poor, like, like dirt floors, like, no no uh, electricity or running water. Like, I mean, like, he is, he's, he's the, you know, oldest of six, six kids. And, you know, it's like, I, I, I admire all of them. They're very, they're very hard. They, they, they but they're driven. Like all of them are driven. Like all of them are like, so like talented, like they all can do certain things. Like they all have an each very unique thing that they can do. Like, you know, and I love every single one of them, like they, in their own right, like for the way they are, you know, my dad, uh, the most, of course. Yeah, of course. Are they all, are they all here? In yeah. The United States yeah. Or, uh, okay. Thank, thank, thank God. Like they're still here. You know, and they've all worked in like very various places and had various, you know, uh, you know, uphill battles, but you know, I've never heard, you know, that's one thing that I do other admire about my dad. Like we're, we we're poor for a long time and we struggled, but my dad was a very proud man. Man, my dad never took any handouts, never took anything, man. Like he, he just, that, that he said that that's not, that's not how you do things. Like a man, you know, stands up for his family. And, and if you, you know, one thing he told me as a young kid is I was kind of getting older and he goes, you know, like, it always had a lot of wise things to say. Like my dad never like really would sit down and like I said, tell me, tell me they love me or hug me and tell me things. But he always tried to like give me advice that would be even more beneficial to me. Like, you know, he said, Hey, anyone can make kids. He goes, but try raising them. He goes, that's, that's a real man. He goes, bring them up. He goes, work, get up. He goes, and when no one's watching, you know, to see what you're doing. And like, he goes, you got to get up for them. Like you have no choice. You can't, you can't just sit around and, and, those things that he instilled, like, you know, that's what, you know, people have told me is like, man, you know, you're, you're retired and you're still kind of like wanting to do things. I said, I don't know. I just don't know any other way. Like, that's just kind of the way I was brought up. So in what age did you start actually work, like going into the, the board patrol? Um, I, I joined the board patrol. So that's, that's the second part of that story. So my sister, my older sister, she's a year older. Um, she was the first of our, entire family to go to college. So she went to she first, she started at junior college. And then she, uh, one day, like I was working in like a, a dead end job. I was working like in, like, uh, gosh, I was working at a rice mill. I mean, I called it like, it was brutal. Like it was like just flat out brutal. We would grind rice into flour exported to Japan. And there oh, was wow. like, it was like 90 pound bags. And then we would do like, I don't know, like 20 pallets a, a shift. And it was like 4,000 pounds a pallet. You do the math. That's like, you'd load a whole semi by hand, like on these pallets. And man, like I felt like my long, my arms got even 
elongate three to four inches, just like carrying those bags like all day long, you know. And then my sister, you know, she came home from junior college and she was like, hey, you're not this. You're not staying here. You're not staying in this town and you're not going to like you be nothing. And she showed up with like a, a flyer and it had the board troll um, logo on it and stuff. And it was just like a really like it was something like that you that I would make right now with a pencil. I mean, the, the, the flyer back then was crazy. It looked it looked cheesy. It was just like look, like it was handwritten and it said yeah. like, hey, take a test. And then I filled out the filled out the, the, the testing part. And then, you know, next thing I know, like, hey, you, you got a written test in Sacramento. I was like, OK, so I you know drove to Sacramento past, you know, there was like 500 people in there, you know, people with suits on and stuff. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. Cause at the time when I went in, which is 1995 or actually it's before that. Cause I applied like in 1993 and um, the the military was downsizing. So all these military people with a lot of experience were, you know, going for these jobs. I mean, I was just a young kid. Like I was 18, 19 applying. I had no real experience, you know, and I applied and I passed. There's like, who's, who's fluent in Spanish. And there was, like two part tests, which are super brutal. Like they have an artificial language test that you have to do. And a lot of people have a lot of trouble with it. And then I, I claimed fluency. So I passed the test and then I had to go in front of a, um, border patrol, uh, station in Stockton. It was, it was a rough and ready Island. And I, I didn't even know the border patrol had a station in like in Stockton. And so I show up on this in Stockton. Uh, I passed the, uh, Spanish fluency and then I do everything else. I do the background and all that. And then I get a letter in the mail, like uh, Bill Clinton was the ch- or president at the time. Then he's like, he put a hiring freeze, like on all federal jobs. So like my application sat there from like 1993. And like, you know, I was like, I go back to working in the rice mills. And then oh, come on. two years go by. And then I get a letter like, hey, you want the job? And I'm like, what? Like, I'd already totally forgot about it. Really? And yeah, the letter showed up saying, "Hey, you want the job?" And you weren't applying for anything else, any other like law oh, enforcement stuff. I I did. I California Highway Patrol like two times, Sacramento Sheriffs. Um, who else? Gosh, and and then I think I did L A L A P D. I did L A P D and L A Fire. So then oh, I right. get hired, and then that you know I had a stack of just like rejections from everybody. L A P D and L A Fire never really responded back, so I just figured, well, I you know, so I went to the Border Patrol in. So I got hired, showed up to San Diego in June, in June of uh, 95. And my sister was there. My, my brother-in-law was, were living there. So that kind of helped. And then my brother-in-law takes me like the day that I have to enter on a duty, like at four in the morning, like drops me off in front of this like MIB building with like no signage on it or anything. Like I'm on sitting on the street corner and like trying to figure how to get in there. And then I see another guy show up later. And then a couple other guys, Oh, I'm in the right place. You know, like, That's funny. so Ended up, they put us on a on a detention bus where they put all the like all the prisoners and all that <laughs> oh stuff. Oh my gosh! So we get up there and like I'm thinking we're gonna get like first rate service, man. And they roll up in a detention bus, put us all in there, shackled, roll us down. What's that? <laughs> shackled, shackled in there. Yeah, no, no shackles, but they just like all that stuff was still on the floor. You know, I'm yeah. just like, dang, what? Like, it's like, what if like this thing were to roll over, catch fire? We're we gonna get out of here. Everything's like, like you know. So they drop us off at the San Diego airport and then we show up to uh, Glencoe, Georgia. Well, we fly into Florida and I can't remember what part of Florida we flew into, but then we drove down. We, we show up like, like all the military things you see, like we show up in the middle of the night, you know, like it's all like choreographed, man. We show up like at midnight, like you're so tired of traveling all day. 
and then they let you have it, man. They give you the business, man. The the the, the drill instructors show up, man. Like all their stuff's like shined up, like squared away. They come out, and I'm like, this is my first time away from home. Like I, I'm I'm 20, 20 years old, and my wow. buddy who I was sitting with next to, he was in the Marines. He goes, just stay right next to me, man. He goes, do not. He's like, just go with it. Do not like question anything. He goes, you're going to find yourself in big, you know, in big trouble if you do. And, you know, they had all these like yellow steps on the floor stuff. And like, you know, what did they call it? Heel, heel to butt cheek, man. Like, you know, like toe to heel. And like, you had to like line up like, and man, they gave it to us, man. Guys walking by, like yelling so loud, like spitting at us and stuff. You know, it's like, I could like feel someone like spit from like how, yeah, how long. And at that very moment, man, like it just sunk in, man. I was just like, holy crap i was like what did i get myself into like this is probably not a good idea and uh sure enough man like it was it was brutal like the first couple of days and i bombed like the first um like two tests and and then i you know call my dad the first person you know i i I call my dad and you know there's no cell phones back then there's no right they had like this crazy like pay phone system that you have to set up and i call my dad and and I actually like to be honest with you, I started like tears rolling down my face. I'm crying. I was like, "Hey, Dad, I don't I don't think I can do this." You know, I I it's I go, it's too hard. I already failed like two of the tests. And then he said, and even just thinking about it's like really hard to bring up. But he he said, "What did I?" He goes, "Why did I kill myself in the field?" He goes, "Why did I work all those hours?" And uh, man, it was like. He goes, if you come back here, you're going to come back to nothing. He goes, you have to finish. He goes, you're going to, you're going to thank me. He goes, in 25 years, you're going to have your whole life ahead of you. He goes, you'll have a, a pension, a, you know, insurance. You'll have everything you ever, ever wanted, everything I ever wanted. He goes, he goes, but you got to get in there. He's like, you've been through worse. He goes, he goes, just remember every, what I'm telling you right now. He goes, you will have nothing if you don't make it. And man that like like just sunk in like to hear that from like the person who has the most impact on me to tell me that and i said you know what you're right and from that moment on like i just like buckled down studied did everything i had to do like all and and it was true like my dad was like he says can they put their hands on you and i'm like well not really he goes can they can i punch you can they hit you and 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 i'm like no he's like well then it's nothing that you can't deal with he goes doesn't matter what they make you do he's like you can deal with it and, um, and he was right. He was right. You know, it was just like that, that uneasiness and like fear really of the unknown that like was really like grabbing hold of me. Yeah. And then just to hear, hear him say that, it was just, you know, and I get it. Like when I look back at the Academy and I think about like how they do things or why they do things they're, they're testing your resilience, man, because you're going to be in situations where like things are not going to go good. Yeah. And, you know, it could go really bad. And I think, when you're there, you don't really see that, you know, and you're like, Oh, this is so hard unnecessarily. Or for people that have never been in law enforcement, I think when they see that they're like, Oh, that's just unnecessary. Like, uh, no, everything that is to me, in my opinion, like all the things that they did and the way that they did it, I wouldn't change a thing. None of it. Well, I mean, talk about resilience, talk about composure. Like we talk about the fact that like the, the Academy has changed so much even to today. Like it's changed. It's not as, it's not as hard, I'm sure, as it what used to be. And everyone says that. I think every generation says that. But um, I think about the times that, like, even, like, doing, like, riot control recently, yeah. obviously in the last couple of years, and you can yeah. stand on a line and be yelled at for hours. But the yeah. whole idea is that you have to maintain, you have to be professional, maintain composure, 
not do anything rash. Like you have to, you know, look at, keep your eyes open, look around, see what's going on, make sure no one's going to get hurt. Right. And that's where the training comes from. It comes from that, that basic academy training of beginning, like you said, getting screamed at, but you're maintaining your composure and you're not, and you're like looking straight ahead and you're, you're okay. Like mentally you have to be okay to be able to deal with it because you're going to deal with it in the, in the, you're going to deal with that situation or like you said, even worse when you're out there in the field. And yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Like, I don't think it, I don't think it should change. I think you need that. I think you need to be broken down a little bit to see that you're able to, you're able to hold on to that because people are going to leave people who can't handle it. You said, maybe you're about to leave. People will leave. Yeah. At that time, at that time, I think we had like a 35% attrition rate out of the Academy. I think it was about 35%. And if, if the law didn't get you, I mean, when they, when you would get there, like the law, I mean, they'd stack like books, like you couldn't barely see over the top of the, of like the tops of the books. You have to like look around it to see your instructor. And I'm just like, he's like, you have, you know, you have guys. I remember how many weeks it was 26 weeks, 28 weeks to, to put all this in, you you know, and then people like, like that were not non native um, Spanish speakers had to learn like, uh, you know, Spanish, like they, I think they equated it to like two years or two and a half years of Spanish college. Like really that's in, in that short amount of time. Like, and, and you're talking, you're, you're putting a lot of pressure on, you know, people that don't speak Spanish or people that, you know, like you said, like all these different scenarios, you know, if one thing won't get you, another one will, if the physical does the academics will, you know, like, and, and that's not where it stops. You know, you still got like scenarios, you got like your, you, and then you got to be able to be proficient with a gun. You know, and I was lucky. I was lucky. I was, I, I ended up being just a natural shooter, you know, and, and I'm, I, I loved guns, uh, but the Academy, like definitely like made me yeah. really, really like respect them and learn how to use them. And I, I, I appreciate all the, all the training that I got. I don't think I ever knew that the border patrol, um, put, I mean, I understand why they put emphasis on Spanish, but I, I never knew that they would make you guys learn that in depth if you didn't yeah. already know it. I and mean, it makes sense. You should know, you should understand what's going on, but I didn't. Re- I, didn't th- I don't think I ever heard that. Yeah, that, that's that's one of the like really hard parts that people don't understand about the academy is our Spanish program is like so like. And then I later went back like six years later after being in the field, I went back to be a Spanish instructor. So oh, I got really? to sit on like I got to sit on both sides. <clears throat> and uh, I, I, it was so it was a lot better going as an instructor. We had a lot of fun. Oh yeah. But, see like the stress and fear and like the new you know new recruits faces when you're teaching them stuff and um i I did firearms later became a firearms instructor and you know and and i went back to teach that and and you know that was a lot of fun too like i I loved teaching firearms i loved teaching um uh, those things and i I remember there was one one case in point that sticks out like out of everything and so we would help out, like we look like a sea of red out there, because like when you're in the academy, it's like a one to one ratio. So for every shooter, there'll be like fifty shooters out there. You got a one to one guy right oh, really? behind you. Yeah, and that's only for a certain part until they develop into like go into like certain different um, levels of whatever we're teaching, like basic basic marksmanship. Like that's like one to one because some people have never handled a gun. Yeah, and so sometimes you would be with your own class and then you'd help out with another class. Cause it was that many people coming in. I mean, we had classes, waves of 50 people coming in every, like every week, you know, like every week we had 55, 50 people coming in. So it's just like, just like waves of agents coming in at the time. So I, I, I got to help out with another class and I, and I, everyone would kind of knew uh, like when you, you kind of like size your, your recruits out and you kind of like, okay, I'm going to like line up behind this guy. Right. So I, I was late to kind of like line up. And I ended up getting this guy like on the middle 
and then some just like you know i'm like so they're they're doing like stress fire so they're like doing all kinds of stuff where it's like quick draw and stuff like that and and this guy's like like really laid out of his holster he's like firing like off like you know buzzer goes off and like two seconds later he's like firing i'm like hey what are you doing i go listen to the to the you know to the commands i, I go can you hear him he goes yes and he's like he wouldn't look over at me he never made eye contact with me so i was just like what is wrong with this guy and then he'd like reholstered and then they'd go faster and faster more rounds and he'd be like more out of control and i'm like dude you need to stop i go you're gonna end up shooting yourself so someone sees me like in his ear like giving him all kinds of instruction and then someone taps me on my shoulder and then like i saw his hand like once he like they made him draw out it's like his hands were like like shaking like crazy i'm like well maybe i'm pushing this guy too much maybe i'm, I'm stressing him too much and then a the guy goes hey that guy he goes Another instructor came and goes, that guy right there that you're, that you're talking to? I go, he, sh- he shot himself in the leg, um, like, the, the day before. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, like, he, like, shot himself, like, in the leg. He goes, well, he shot himself through his pants. And then in his pants, they carry these red, like, uh, felt markers, these big ones. And it, he she hit the felt marker. It blows up. It, it sends ink everywhere. The guy thought he shot himself in the leg, but it was the ink. From oh, come the, on. the marker, <laughs> and he missed his legs. So, but nonetheless, he's like traumatized. Like, oh yeah, like, like you know. So and then I get him the next day, and I'm jumping on him, and it's like I was like, oh, crap. I was like, man, okay, I better chill out, man. This guy's gonna end up shooting himself for reals in the leg or myself. Yeah. So that that those experiences like that. I mean, I think I I think he ended up making it, but you know, just I mean, like I said, it's like one thing after another, man. When you're yeah. there, that's crazy. Yeah, can you imagine? Like, yeah, he's freaking out in his head. Like, I'm gonna shoot. I'm gonna accidentally shoot myself again, or whatever. Yeah. And then, yeah, and you're <laughs> trying to you're trying to teach him. You have no idea. That's yeah. crazy. It's, it's nuts. Like, you know. So how? So you were in San Diego this whole time at that at that point, or were you had already gone to Arizona? No, I was in San Diego for um, about eleven years. About were 10, you, eleven years? Were you flying out to? Was the academy in Florida? It, it was in uh, in uh, Glencoe, Georgia. Which Georgia was our. So when I went to the academy, it was in Glencoe, Georgia. Then they moved it. They moved it to Charleston, South Carolina. So that's where I went to teach Spanish. Got it. And then they would move several years later. It would move to Artesia, New Mexico, where it's currently now. So those are those are the three spots that I was part of. There was one. There was previous spots before I came in. Like one, I think, right before I came in, it was called the Alabama Five Hundred. And they're notorious. Like they're known. I think all of them are probably all retired now, but. Like they 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 used a military base like in Alabama I think and they put like 500 agents there and they said it was just crazy like that's 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 where they held their academy until they got their own place in Glencoe Georgia oh wow yeah so when you were in San Diego uh, what was your basic what was your basic duty were were you doing were you doing the um, actual border like check ins or what were you doing yeah uh, no you were on patrol like you either had we had ATVs horses um, and our our vehicles you figure I got there in ninety five so. The station only had like I think when we got there, I think it only had about a hundred agents. I think it wasn't very big. They patrol five miles of border, so they're oh, wow. which is very small. So it's from San Ysidro Port of Entry, and it runs out all the way to the beach, like all the way to the water. And uh, when we got there, like I was working um, in the evening, so six p.m. and then you had six p.m. to two two p or two a, and then you had the midnighters that would kind of overlap in between there. Um, on 6P at that time we were doing, I think we were doing like about, I think about 2000 apprehensions a shift. We were losing. 
yeah, we're doing we're doing about two thousand apprehensions a shift, and and that's and I, I think honestly, in all honesty, I think we were catching about twenty percent. Really? Uh, of, of, yeah. So we were getting we were getting completely blown up every night, every night, like, and it was relentless. Like every night, you know, as soon as the sun went down. Like, that's it. Like, everything, like, the whole border came alive, man. I mean, you had people, like, running up the freeway. You'd have, like, what we they used to call, like, these bonsais, and you'd have people running up the freeway, like, 100 at a time. And you have cars running, driving, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour into Mexico, like, from the U.S., and these people running the opposite way in those lanes. I mean, you can only imagine, like, the amount of people that oh were killed, hit, like, and then, you know, we would be out there trying to, like, you know, arrest these people. They'd jump just cross the freeway i mean going to like neighborhoods and homes and like so it's just all the nonstop. i mean like it's just crazy what how do you deal i mean how many how many agents are out there that you're getting two thousand people a day that you're they're apprehending two thousand on on a ship i think we're only maybe like on a ship maybe like 50 of us and and that's and you would have you'd have a guy that would put down and put down i mean like arrest i'm not saying like you'd shoot anybody but right. you'd put down like you'd be up in a, on an area by yourself. You'd have like it'd be it wouldn't be uncommon to have like sixty, seventy people by yourself on the ground. So like who's that. uh who's when you're taking these people? Where do you take them? And how do they like who tra- who uh, does the processing? Because you don't, you can't be out there doing all this work and doing processing still. No, so you, you'd have agents like they're back at our our we do our own processing. So you'd have our own intake. So you'd have like four agents or five six agents at the station, and they'd come in these tanks and um. We had like two vans, two of these old Chrysler vans that sat like twenty people in them. You literally had to like overload these these vans to get to keep up with the amount of people that were you're arresting because you. So we would put people in these tanks, and these tanks are only made to hold like I don't know, maybe like you know three hundred people, and then you you know, and the 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 bosses would be like, you got to put them in there, and we'd have like double double the capacity like oh that 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 was supposed to be in there. I mean, nowadays. I mean, people probably go to jail for that, like for yeah. doing that. Like, but there was like no choice. You'd have people sitting where the buses would drive up, like it, to in the secure, the Sally Port area. You'd have hundreds of people standing out there, like because you all the tanks were full. And then you'd have all those guys like processing these people, like like inputting their names, like bio data, whatever. And then like it, it would just depend on the the U.S. attorney on like how many how many entries that person had before they would go, you know, uh, prosecute them. You know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of, at that time we were just catching people, sending them back to Mexico and then come right back. And we were doing that for like years. Would you see the same people and, over again? Oh yeah. You'd see people like 20, 30 hits, like really? you know, recidivist hits. So they'd come back in like over and over. And then you see the smugglers that they, they would get in there. I mean, it's just nonstop, nonstop. And, and you would be out there sometimes and you would just be like, you'd, you know, you'd be on the ground with 10 people and you'd watch like 80 people running down, down the road. And you're just like, we need help. Like yeah. somebody come help us. And for years, nobody cared. It was no, nobody cared about anything that we did. We had vehicles that barely ran. Um, at that time, the border patrol was, was married with the uh, immigration and naturalization service. So that's the, that's the branch that actually makes people citizens. Right. So they were married with us and we were like the, they called us the redheaded stepchild. Like, like, I mean, we, we we very rarely saw any of the money that was allotted to go to us. We, we like our vehicles were trash. Like our equipment was trash. Like training was trash. And I'm not saying the guys that were putting on the training is trash. I'm just saying like compared to what we should have been getting, right. the, the amount of money and resources. Like the guys were doing, the guys and girls were doing the best they could. But like 
somebody was keeping all the funds away from us. Like we never got anything. And, and that didn't change until like, you know, later on when the, you know, they broke apart, INS went a different route and we were separated from them. But for years, for years, we never got any, any money. That's crazy. Did you stay on patrol in San Diego the whole time? Yeah. So I was in, I was in San Diego for, like I said, the 10, 11 years I stayed on patrol. Um, I jump on details. Details were like things that you could do collaterally. Like, like I, like I went to the Academy to teach one year. I taught, I taught Spanish, gave myself a little break off that came back to patrol and I did firearms. I was, I got certified in firearms and became an armor for the border patrol. So I would oh, that's got cool. to be, yeah. So then I got to be at the, uh, um, indoor facility that we had there at, uh, the Naval training center, um, in San Diego. And I did that for like three, three years. And then after that, in between that, I, I just started going on details. Like, um, before, like what you see now in the news, like in like uh, McAllen sector in South Texas, Del Rio, all that, like in, I got to go there like in 1999 and we had no money, same, same scenario, no money, no people. And the situation was just as bad back then. Like you would just, you, they would put one guy on the line to keep an eye out with, but with binoculars, cause that's about the best you had at that time. And then the next guy down from you was like, like a mile or two. So you couldn't even see like in between that area, they have, they have that blade grass in Texas. So they'd come across the Rio Grande river. And if you'd see a movement or maybe a seismic sensor go off, then you have to go off of that. And then you'd get another guy to help you out. And I mean, it was complete chaos down there. I mean, it sounds, it sounds crazy. It was, it was, it was, it's like the wild west down there. And then Douglas, Arizona was that way. Like, it, you know, it was weird because, once, like after four years at San Diego, they like were, we were able to control somewhat slow down the flow in our area, and it kept pushing it out east. So the next area they got out of control was like El Centro. I don't know if you're familiar with where that is. Like it's basically like by no. Yuma. Arizona. Okay. So that area blew up too. So that area was just barren, barren desert out there. So that like you'd have like just you know thousands of entries out there. So we went out there to work and help them short up. And then it ended up going like to Douglas, Nogales. So I just kept taking details and working at all these different areas. And, you know, as a young agent, I mean, that's amazing to see all these different places and work and er see how every station does everything a little bit different, you know? Um, was it uh? so I'm, I'm imagining like the people trying to get across the board, like running from you guys. Was there any people yeah. that were trying to, that try to engage with you that would, as far as like, you know, firearms or people who actually want to fight. Yeah. There's, a, there'd be a lot of that. There'd be a lot of, of, of that, you know, um, especially like when, it, when, when at that time, the big thing was, you know, obviously marijuana was very, very big at the time. All that kept coming across the border. Anytime you'd have a vehicle that was, that was coming across the border or in, in our area in San Diego it was mostly vehicles. And, and that was always a very like, uh, a very risky situation because you only had, they only had to get within a couple of miles within like, you know, three, four miles, they're already into like a, you know, a city area, you know, or, and that posed a big problem because you'd have like, you know, vehicles trying to run over agents, um, shooting oh, at them. Um, I mean, just all kinds of stuff or doing draws or doing plays. Like, I mean, a lot of the stuff was choreographed, like, you know, like what we would call like a suicide vehicle, you know, they'd send a suicide vehicle through the border and it has like all this, all these drugs in there. Something that seemed too easy. And that ties up like, you know, 10 guys with well, 10 guys at that time is probably almost the entire shift. And then what happens down the road, like another, another part of the wall would be cut 
and then they'd send another truck with like two thousand oh, pounds okay. going up the, up the freeway, and it was like that all the time, all the time. That's crazy. How many were you guys aware of that kind of stuff? So you'd see that this the suicide vehicle or whatever would be like, hey, this is going to be something else might be going down, and would you have some like do you guys have other kind of services like helicopters, anything to like check this out? The other areas. Um, at that time, like everything that we had back then was like Vietnam era uh, base. Like our our helicopters back then were, I think they called them a Loach. It was like a Hughes five hundred or something. It was just like the Magnum PI helicopters. That's these funny. little like little like Loaches, yeah. And that's all we had. And we had like, I don't know if they had FLIR back then. Yeah, they did have a FLIR, but it was very like the early stages of like the infrared, right? And, um, and then the small helicopters. But we'd have one or two. That covered the entire San Diego County. Uh, we had stations up in Temecula, San Clemente, like all those areas wouldn't get the same support that the border got. Yeah, you know. So, so what, what made you decide to switch over? Well, go ahead. What are you saying? Um, it was just crazy, like how much, how much we did with very little. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's what we're in this era too. Now it's like it feels like we're getting less and less as far as resources go, or people, personnel, like less and less yeah. these days, and how are we going to solve these problems with less people? Yeah. And I think that, that the current climate now, like when I came in, I mean, like I told you, like when I came in, there was definitely a different climate to how people perceived law enforcement and how we were treated. Um, I'm not saying we were treated good or anything, but I think there was a sense of like, we had that understanding or that mutual respect, like between the public and people in uniform. Yeah. And then now, like I, I feel that too much has been too much um, has been placed on, on criminals, like everything, you know, criminals have rights, criminals have this criminals that. And, and people forget that like, if, if you're having contact for the most part, <laughs> my experience, even as a kid, if you're having contact with police, it's usually because you're either around something or maybe someone, you know, you're in the wrong place or maybe you're, you're doing something that is drawing yourself to that. You're not a hundred percent innocent. Right. Like, even myself, like if I were to get pulled over, okay, he didn't just pick me out of the air to pull me over. He's like, Hey man, you're going kind of fast. Like where are you headed? So, so I'm obviously doing something to warrant right. the contact. And well, I, think I always thought that was interesting now, too. Yeah. I think that now, now that like nowadays, if you have any kind of contact, it's like, Oh, how dare you? How dare you like, pick me out and all this stuff. And now law enforcement is being made to be like the villain. I go, yes, yeah, so don't get me wrong. Like in my, in my agency, there was a lot of bad guys and there's a lot, there was a lot of just bad, bad people, just bad people. And I knew who they were. Like I just stayed away from them. I just, I, I didn't, I didn't work around them. I didn't associate with them, you know, and there was a lot of racist people where I worked, you know, and, and that was a tough part, you know, that was a tough part, like biting my tongue because, you know, you, there's a very thin line, you know, like, there, you know, you, you, you definitely don't want to be in a position where, you know, people are questioning like your loyalty to like to, to the other people you're working with. Right. And, and I think that's, that's something that, thankfully when I was in my career that I, I, I never had a problem. Anybody questioning my loyalty and the people that I chose to work around were followed the same rules, you know, and you're saying people are racist within but, the department. Yeah, that you worked around. Yeah, and and that was tough, man. It was tough to deal, with, especially being Mexican. You know, like Mexican, and then you know a lot of our command staff. You know, was you know majority was white, um, and but not all of them were bad though. Like I had a lot of like good supervisors. I had a lot of good like you know um, 
captains or, you know, supervisors and you had like PICs that were really good, you know, chiefs that, that I got along well with, but you know, there was anywhere you go, there's going to be bad people. But I think now the current climate, everyone's just focusing on like the one bad guy, whatever, you know, like, like my buddy used to, or one of this, one of my old, old training officers said, you know, like, you know, if you're expecting someone to pat you on the back, you do something good. You got another thing coming. I was like, I was like, you know, stars in my eyes are shiny my uniforms pressed i'm thinking like i'm gonna save the world and he goes but he said step and shit once and he goes and and you're gonna have that stench on you for the rest of your career yeah so be very careful on what you do and um i don't know just that i i just see it now and i make it it, i feel bad i feel bad for anybody who's in law enforcement now and and because i wore the badge and the gun for a long time and i did the job the best i could and that's one thing my dad always reminded me is like hey you know, because a while there, like all the adversarial things that I was dealing with were getting to me. And I was like, you know, I'm going to quit. And then my dad was like, if you quit and you leave that position, he said, someone else behind you is going to pick up where you left off and the same or be as fair as you. He goes, so you have to remember that. He goes, you, you do your job, you do it the best you can. And that's all you have to just be fair. That's all you got to do. And, and that's kind of the way I've tried to, I, that's kind of the way I went about my career, you know? And, and when I would catch somebody like, you know, smuggling drugs, like just because they had the drugs in their car and stuff like that, like, yes, I'd give them a business, arrest them, give them a third degree, whatever I got to do. And if we had to go hands on, we went hands on. Like it was, you know, whatever the person's response dictated how I responded back right. to handling that. But when, when it's all said and done, like I would always use those moments, like to talk to the person, like I would be like, why are you doing this, man? You're young. Like you're, you know, I wouldn't just like, and I was doing this way back then. No one was telling me to do it. I just, I don't know. Maybe I saw a little bit of myself in these people. Like, you know, Hey, you know, trying times, you know, you do things, you make bad decisions. And, um, and I would just tell them like, Hey man, you're, you're going to like, I don't know, that, I don't know what's going to happen to you here. I would tell them, I said, I don't know how, how much trouble you're going to get into. I said, but I go, if you, if you are able to get out of this and later fix your life, I go, they go, don't throw it away, man. Don't, don't throw it away. I said, these, these decisions will ruin your life forever. And that's what I would take moments to do that, you know, to talk to the people that were actually getting in trouble. I go, I'd say like, you're in trouble. The guy who sent you to do all this, I go, that guy's at home. I go, he's making money. I said, but you're the one out here arrested. Right. I go, now what? And that's kind of like, I'd always do that throughout my career. I think that's good. Right? I mean, you're not just showing mentorship to the people you worked with, but the people that you're having impact on the community. I mean, that's, I think that without maybe even knowing you were doing it at the time, I mean, maybe you just like, it was just natural for you, but thinking back on it, I think you yeah. probably recognize that you probably made a lot of difference to several people you dealt with. Yeah. I, mean, I, I just felt like, well, you know, they're people at the end of the day, they're people. And that's what people, I think people are, are forgetting that like police officers, border patrol agents, whoever's wearing a gun and a badge, I think people are forgetting first and foremost that they're people yeah. like they're no different than you. And, and the only reason why people now um, can say so many things is, you know, they, it's easy to get behind a keyboard and type away and like say all these things about videos and things that they post. But, you know, it's funny. Like when you see like reporters or people like get put in situation, like even just a mock situation, how fast, they screw it up and then like they, they get a break because like hey they weren't trained or whatever right. but the person who screws up and makes the bad decision like in that one split second like they don't get a do-over you know like their career's over or they're going to jail or you know whatever and and 
And that's, that was one of the big reasons why I got out. I, I got out of the, you know, I still had, I could have did 10 more, more years. And, oh, really? and the other reason was my kids, you know, yeah, I could have did 10 more years. And I ended up being a canine handler for the last nine years, nine years of my career. In Arizona? And that was probably the most uh, revigorating of like my entire, like, that was probably the best time of my entire life. That's as cool. A, as an agent. So is that why you went over to Arizona because the canine or did you go to before? Oh, I, I, no, I, I left before. I left before because I couldn't afford to live in California anymore. <laughs> I know. Like I, I bought a house in I bought a house in La Mesa, and at that time, I think it. I can remember what I paid for it, but it was astronomical. Like property taxes and everything was like you know, and they pay us well there. But regardless of what they pay, there the the cost of living is astronomical. Unless yeah. you unless you have a partner that makes you know same as you, you know, you're probably not going to do very well. So cost of living is why you really ultimately left. Yeah. How'd you get into canine? Was that, was that a difficult process or was it something that you had to like put in for and just. Yeah, it's, it's really hard. It's, it's super hard to get into. Um, at that time, the process has changed since, but um, like I started out in, well, when I transferred from San Diego to Arizona, I went to Naco, Arizona, which is like between Douglas and like Southeast of Tucson, a small little town or small little station. And then from there, I transferred to the Casa Grande station. And the Casa Grande, Arizona station is like, like south of Phoenix. It's kind of a weird location. I think it was built in the, that station was built in the 80s or 70s, maybe. I mean, it, it had multiple locations, but I think it was meant to be like an interior station. Okay. And so from that station, I, that's where I finished my career. So that's that's a 110-mile drive from the station to the border every day, five days a week. So, and... That's crazy. You know, when you think about it logistically, that makes absolutely no sense like to do that. I mean, but it's, it's, it's the government, man. Like I tell you, like that makes no sense, but that's what we did. And, and uh, so once I got to that station, I put in for a canine spot and you have to, you know, cut a memorandum, put all your experience or your your wants and why you want to do it. And then finally I got selected and then they gave me an option. They said, you can do homeschool, which is like, you basically go down to our sector in Tucson and you have like a, an instructor who's already certified and he'll put you through the school and you get to go home. Like I get to, I get to like actually drive myself back to my house. And I said, no, I want to go. Um, I want to earn it. I want to, I want to go where everyone else has had to go before me. And they're like, Oh, you're going to have to go to El Paso. You're going to have to go to Fort bliss. And like, dude, it's a, it's a, it's a hellhole. I'm like, I don't care. Like my parents live there and I want to, I want to go. So, okay. So they sent me off and, you go there and man, what an eye opening experience, man. You get in there and like, this is the, this is at the, as, at the climax of like Cesar Milano, like doing all these crazy things with dogs and making them do whatever yeah. he wants. And we get in there and then the instructor gets up in front and he's like, or the, one of the main guys in charge. And he's like, how many people watch Cesar Milan? And like, everyone's raising their hand. They're like, well, forget that shit. It's <laughs> like, this is reality right here. He goes, you, they don't show you all the outtakes they don't show you all the things he has to do he goes and then he goes he's like we're gonna put this on and go this is the reality and then they put on a video of like a two-minute video where a handler has a belgian malinois and like he's got a shirt off which is crazy so he's just got his uniform pants on and he's got no like dress shirt on or no 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 top shirt just like an undershirt on yeah and like they got like a ring of agents in this like open area like in a smooth cement area and this this they get this dog out and it's got like a Cujo, like a Bane, like the Batman Bane mask yeah, yeah, on, yeah. His, mu- his muzzle. And I'm like, holy crap, Like, what are they going to do? And then this guy's like, 
this guy's a big dude. Like this, is the agent that's in there without the shirt, he's got like, or with the cover shirt, he's like, I don't know, he's like six foot, like six one, a big dude. And then, and then this dog's, I don't know, he's about eighty pounds, seventy pounds. And then they're like, they're like, get ready. They're like, get ready. And then all these guys are around. I'm like, what's going to go on? And they let the dog go. And the dog like comes up at him and like tries to like bite him through the muzzle. And then um, it was his dog. That dog that they were doing that was the agent's dog. So he had, so this last, this is like a last resort to get the dog to be a dog that you can work with. And that's called an alpha roll. And pretty much, man, this guy wrestles with this dog on the ground. Like the dog would pop back up. He would put him down. I mean, he ripped his shirt. It like drew blood with his nails. Like he, he ended up being on top of it. And then he was like growling in this dog's ear. And I'm just like thinking like, what in the world is he doing? And the supervisors who have a lot of experience at this, like they're the actual, like the, the, you know, elite trainers of our canine program, they would tell him like how much to let off and, and to hold him down. And like, man, this dog, like this went on for like two minutes and this dog is like staring at him right in the eyes, right? Like, like he wish he could kill him. And then finally he kind of like, you see him kind of start to like let up a little bit. And then he turns his head away from his handler. And he's like, okay, start to let him up slowly. And then as soon as he started to kind of let him up slowly, he like, he locked back on and was like growling again. And when they told him to put him back down, all that happens. And finally he's able to control the dog. So he gets a dog and they put him in the truck and they're like, so they stop the video and everyone's like, eyes are like wide open. <laughs> yeah, no they're kidding. Like, they're like, who wants to, anybody want to leave? You, the door's right there, you know? And I think a lot of people like looked around and like, Did anybody know, leave? Crap. Yeah. No, at that time, no, because you don't really know like. Yeah. You're like, oh, I can like, still do it. Oh, I can still do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the main guy comes up and they kind of do like this weird thing where you walk up and the guy asks you like, hey, where's your, where, what station are you from? I'm um, going here. You have any kids? Yeah. Hold. He would ask you like these random questions. And then there was a line of guys like just coming up and he had all these like serial numbers on a piece of paper. And this guy would make a mark. And I guess he was basically assigning your dog, you know? And I'm like, I'm like, Oh, that's weird. And then, but man, this guy would be so good. Like he was dead on like pairing really dog with, with the type of person like, like, cause every station has different type of work. Like some station is predominantly checkpoint. So you're always on the highway. Other stations are mountainous. Other stations are like desert, a lot of like tracking. You would tell him where you're from and he would, he would know. So he would pick certain, you know, certain dogs. And then, uh, my dog was like this, this one, this one dog that I got. And, and then my, I had a nice advantage because one of the instructors that was there was my, from my station. So he, he goes, Oh, I got a, I got a dog like handpicked for you. And I'm like, oh, yes. I'm like, yes. I got like the cream, the cream dog. And his name was Tucker. That's funny. So I get, and then, and they kind of give you like a heads up, like, hey, when you go in there, like, um, there could be a, it's a pretty good chance you might get bit when you go in there. And that just immediately, I don't care who you are, how big you are, the, the fact of getting bit by a dog, if that doesn't like scare you a little bit, you're not human. Man. Oh, yeah. I was just in there like, just thinking I'm going to die in here. And then I see him and I get to his kennel. And then, like, he's, like, he's pretty big, man. He's about, like, 80 pounds, 70 pounds, really lean. He's a Belgian Malinois. And then I look up to the top of his kennel. I see Constantine wire up there. I'm like, what is up with this dog? Like, it was the only dog that had Constantine wire at the top of his kennel. And I'm like, and then I. How tall is his cage? Technician, how tall is the cage? Yeah. Probably, like, 10 feet. Oh like, my gosh. 10 feet. And it's, I had something on top. So, I'm like, the vet technician's in there. And she's like, oh, Tucker, he's. He's a softie. I'm like, 
but why is that up there? He's like, oh, he's an escape artist. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, he'll go up the fence, go over it, and then jump out, and then he'll wait by the the veterinarian's uh, door till she gets there. Come on. No, no, true story. And I'm like, this is my dog. And I talk to my buddy. I'm like, are you sure he's good? He goes, oh, he's a hammer, man. He like, he, he's he's a great dog. Like you're gonna you're gonna kill it with him. And sure enough, like we start they. they after that, after you do a, a week of that, then there's okay. Now you guys get to take the dog home with you to the hotel. So we're we're put up in hotels that allow dogs. And you have a crate in there to put them. So everything was going great, and then I went to put them up because I had to go have dinner. And my buddy came over and he goes, "Hey man, all the all our class is going to go eat dinner. Like you ready?" I'm like, "Yeah, let me put Tucker in." And then I I tell like I tell him to kennel, and he like kind of like backs up a little bit. And I'm like, "Oh, oh, we're having an issue here." And then he like. He just like swells up, man. Like he just like, like all his muscles start popping up in the back of his shoulders, hairs up, hackling up teeth. And he didn't want to go into the kennel. He didn't want, he didn't want, he absolutely did not want to go in the kennel. And I'm like, dang, like, what do I do now? And then I'm like, and then he starts like, like coming at me. Like he's going to like tear me, tear me up. And I tell my buddy, I go, Hey, he, my buddy like opens the door and he's like, he's like, Hey, Tuck you know, cause we train with the same dogs like right. in the same area. And my buddy's like trying to come in with the soft voice. <laughs> so he comes in like opening the door. Right. And he's like, Oh, Hey buddy. And he like lunges and like midair, like almost like bites him in the face. Like just, you can hear the teeth like clamping down. So he takes his belt off, man. We look like we're going to go do like a jail fight. So he takes his belt off and like wraps it around his hand. And like, we're trying to like, like I ended up grabbing a stool in the, in the hotel room. And I'm holding the stool out. I got like the pooper scooper, like in my other hand, and I'm like fighting off like a lion. He's like biting the like. We're in there for like 20 minutes fighting with this dog. We're trying to get him in the kennel because he doesn't. I'm guessing he doesn't have. He does no muzzle, right? Oh no, no. So he's all free to go, man. And I'm like, so we end up like in there fighting with him for about 20 minutes. We get into the bathroom. Somehow we corral him into the bathroom, and then my buddy comes up with the great idea. He goes. At the time, I don't think it was great. He goes, okay, you're going to distract him with the pooper scooper bathroom. And when you distract him, I'm going to put the leash right on that because he had his chain on his neck, uh, a choke chain. Yeah. I'm going to get him right there. And then, and then we're going to like, that's how we're going to get him into like control him. And then you're going to grab the kennel and drop it on like a box. That was the plan that he came up with. And I go, this, this dog is going to kill us, man. He's like, so my buddy gets into the, area where the toilet is and i'm like in the area where the two sinks are dogs in there and he's not having it man he's like come in here and i'll kill you both and we just like we're like we got to get him in the kennel like he's got to get in there so then i grab like my buddy like so i start like like uh occupying him or distract him with the with the cooper scooper it's all aluminum like solid aluminum he grabs hold of it and like starts crushing it with his teeth man like and like he's like bending it and my buddy like in that one split second, like the dog turns his head and like he puts the leash on him and then he yanks it and he puts his foot on the door jam and he's like pulling the dog. The dog's like yanking back and then he's like, do it, do it now. So I go and grab the kennel and I drop, drop it on him, man. I mean, so we get that done and we look and we finally like, <laughs> we look at the, the hotel room after that. The, the mattresses were off the bed. Uh, the sofa was flipped upside down, like lamps were on the floor. I mean, like a tornado went through there. That's so the instructors. Funny. Yeah, the instructors come in and they're like, what happened? Uh, and bro, he wouldn't go into the kennel. I thought you said this was a good dog. And then so one of the main instructors tries grabbing him out of the kennel and he like tries to take his hand off. 
And then my instructor who trained him tried getting him and then he tries to uh, bite him too. And then I'm, and then, you know, I'm just like, I said, well, I'm the only guy like they could like handle him, I guess. And I said, well, I better, I guess, you know, I said, well, I better be, you know, willing to lose a finger, I guess, or a hand. I go, I don't know what. So I get on a knee and I start to open the thing and I'm praying that he doesn't lose his mind. And he, uh, came right out for me. Like nothing ever happened. Let me put the, the, the leash on him and walked out. And in the end, they ended up deciding that he had some sort of like separation anxiety. Like he didn't want to be put up and be left alone. Really? So, yeah. So he ended up going like to a, another handler that had a lot more experience, not a new guy. So ended up getting another dog. Oh, so you didn't keep him? His name was John. No, (laughs) I got, I got another dog. His name was John. He ended up being like, just imagine like one of those dudes at the gym that's like lifting like those 140 pound dumbbells, like, and then like, Hey man, like, like super big dude, maybe not very bright. Like that was my dog. John, man. <laughs> he had like, it was like a hot rod, like one, like a, like a, he was amazing, man. He's just all muscle. Like when he got to our house, I had to get him a, a motorcycle tire, a 300 millimeter back tire. And he would grab it. He would grab it in his teeth and hold it straight out like that like i mean that's heavy it's a heavy tire and he'd grab it and he'd walk by the by the window like going back and forth and that usually meant like come on come outside like i want you to swing me around by it and i'd go out there and swing him around by the thing and uh amazing dog man like amazing dog i I miss him i have his i have his urn in my closet and um when i go in there to like chains and stuff i'll look up at his picture and stuff and and I can't help but not remember like all the great times we had, like even the times where we're not so good and like where he bit me or like went crazy or scared the crap out of some sheriffs. Like we had some guys like run out like away from us. And I, he goes, he's like, don't you have a dog? And I was like, yeah. So I had him on leash and then he got away from me. And then the sheriffs were like in between me and the bad guys, they were out in front running. And one of the guys like screamed so loud, like, like I'm serious. Like it was like bloody murder and they never let that, sheriff live it down he's like dude you sounded like a girl screaming i go well this dog was coming like a bullet i thought he was going to get bit but you know he was going after the other guys but it, in the end it was it, it ended up being an amazing dog that's uh, cool I, I miss i miss him and great times wow that's a crazy story yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i know i was one of many man. i know people that want to get into canines i'm sure like it's like they, they probably don't imagine that part of it but that's pretty that's pretty crazy yeah what year did you uh what year did you retire? Um I retired 2 years ago. Okay. So was that 20, 20, 20 So right 20. before or was it during the craziness right before it or what? I think it was right before like like just right before I got like it just like all hell broke loose right after I left. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Um how are you doing yeah. now with uh like now looking back on like your career and all the times you had I know that you had like a lot of like really good times but like the challenging times too. So how, how are you doing now with all of like looking back on it? Um, well, I mean, I, I mean, I've lost a lot of like friends along the way and, and not in a good way. Like, um, when I started out in San Diego, I, you know, I think we had, um, two or three, four, five, six, maybe six people that had trained us directly that, um, one of them, um, unfortunately killed himself with, uh, alcohol and then passed out on his house and then lit, lit, we had a lit cigarette and then caught the drapes on fire and burned and burned, burned to death. 
Jeez. Another guy took his own life um, after going through a, just a horrible battle with um, custody. And like he had like a, I think he was on a morphine drip for like an injury that he sustained at work. And then he ended up taking his life. Another another two, three, four guys like took their lives just unex- unexpectedly. Um, in my career in San Diego, or I'm sorry, here in, in Casa Grande, I mean, I lost an agent like, um, you know, while on duty, he, he and another agent crashed um, on dirt bikes. And uh, we were, you know, some of the first people to arrive on scene. And um, I, I, I never thought I, I would, uh, you know, have to deal with that. And I'll just touch on that really quick. Um, so we were out on, I was out, I was, I was in my canine truck and I was coming down the highway and then I hear a, one of the younger agents on cycle say, Hey, we need an EMT over here. And then, uh, as soon as I hear it, I'm like, Oh, that's strange. And then I hear like within another minute later, like, Hey, you know, our dispatch, we need a, we need, a, we need a helicopter here and we need, um, we need help bad. There's an agent down and he's hurt really bad. So as soon as those words came over, I mean, like the, like the hair on my neck stood up, you know, it's like, I was, I think I was the, the ranking or the senior patrol agent out on duty at that time. So immediately I'm like, from where they were or from our area where we work, it's about 75 miles from Tucson, which is the next nearest metro area. We're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, literally like 80 miles away from nothing. There's no major hospital, nothing. So I said, you know what? I said, I called the dispatch and I said, hey, this is so-and-so. I need you to launch the Blackhawk. I need you to launch our Blackhawk right now. He's like, you need to get them up in the air. And I go, you need to tell them that that we're going to need them over here at these coordinates. So I still don't even know the extent of the injuries that are going on. I peg my truck out. I mean, I'm driving, you know, over, you know, 105 miles an hour going down the freeway. And then I hear like more help. We need more help. So just all of like another agent getting there and I'm hearing constant, we need more help. I'm just thinking like, man, what could it be? Like I, 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 you know, so I finally lead in another group of uh, EMTs that are behind me. Some new guys from one of our specialty units, kind of like a police, like SWAT, they were like Borstar. Then we had another, I'm not sure if they were Bortac uh, EMTs. So they're like from both different wings. So they follow me in and we get there. And I mean, I, my, my brakes were fire. Like when I stop, when I hit the brakes to stop to where I needed, I think I kept going like another 200 feet. Jeez. Like I, my truck wouldn't stop and I get out and it's, you know, what you least expect. It's, you know, one bike, you know, two bikes down and two agents, one agent, you know, crashed into the other one. And that one is like, being taken away by another agent and then just hearing him scream like at the fact that he caused that he felt that he caused it. I mean, it was an accident, but he, he was screaming and I, that, that just never leaves my, my, my head. And so I run over and there's already like, it's 115 degrees out. It's, it's like, we have no shade trees, nowhere to like get under. Um, you know, I, I move one of the dirt bikes out of the way. Like, and then I say, if anybody asks, like if anybody like asks who moved, it, I go, it's me. They can blame me for moving it, you know, because obviously it was an accident scene, but we needed room to work and we couldn't give like compressions and stuff. Like all the stuff was so mangled. So I'm right. moving things out of the way. And, um, so the guys are giving compressions and like one of my good friends is holding his head and he had sustained like, like a massive head, head injury, like through the, through the helmet. And uh, so we're holding him and I'm holding it, you know, I'm talking to him, I'm holding his legs, you know, and, you know, and then there's a, like a medic next to me, an EMT guy next to me. And then, you know, he's pretty calm. Like I, you know, to be honest, like when I think about it, I, 
I was really pissed. I was really pissed at him because I thought that he didn't care. Like he was just so calm and telling people like what to do. And like keep giving compressions and, and, you know, and we had gone through like, I think four guys already to that point, like giving compressions, like, yeah. you know, cause it was, well, it wears you out. Because yeah. It wears you out. Yeah. yeah. And you know, we're talking like big dudes, like very fit guys that were pumping and I'm holding his legs up, trying to keep as much blood up, up in his, you know, in his prime. like, but the guy next to me is like, he's giving orders and everything. And, and you know, and then of course, like when the worst thing happens, you know, I, I call in the coordinates, I double check the coordinates, the, the GPS coordinates, cause we're in the middle of nowhere. You can't really tell them where to, you got to give GPS coordinates. The, somehow the Black Hawk lands in the wrong area. I mean, they get, they get, they, they get there like as fast as they could. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the airspeed of a Black Hawk is that we have, but it, it, it got there. You could hear him screaming when, when we got there. And it, but it had already been about an hour, like us working on the ground. Oh, wow. Um, so that's how long it took to get to where we were. And then, um, you know, the, the, uh, lifelike gets there, the, the, the doctor and, um, the nurse and everybody. So we're, they're able to like transport them from the ground where we are to the ambulance that's there. And so they, they go in there and they start working on them. And, um, unfortunately, like, like they weren't able to, to save them. They, 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 the, the doctor comes off the, the flight flag guy comes off and he says, Hey, I need to, um, who's in charge here. And I said, well, you know, this supervisor is, and I am, and he goes, I go, you can't take him though. I, and you know, they're, they're like, no, no, we don't plan on taking him." And, and something that I never thought that I would do in my entire career is give someone their last rights. And, um, and I said, you have to let me give him his last rights. I said, you can't just haul him out of here. And he goes, sure, sure. He goes, we're not going to do anything like that we want to be respectful and i said we need to get a flag on him i go we need to just all these crazy things like start coming in your head and you know and, and then um so they 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 take him out or they they pull him back to the back of the ambulance and they open the doors there's like 30 guys like around you know like all the guys that worked on him the guys that came off the black cock were like sprinting over you know and everyone just took a knee and um my but the the paramedic looked at me and goes do it lazoya do it and i'm like gosh, it just crushed me. Like I, I just to think about like his family, like praying over the guys that were there, like involved, like, um, you know, that's stuff like thinking about it. And I thought, I felt for a long time that I had, that we had failed him in like saving his life because, you know, so many things that could have went wrong or, or shouldn't have did go wrong. Like the, uh, the defib, the, the AED machine to give the shock. Yeah. The battery was dead on one of them when we went to use it. The second one was the oxygen bottles where one was empty and the other one was missing something um, that the Blackhawk and the life, the life flight landed in the wrong GPS coordinates. So they had to move over to land where we were. And, and then uh, the time maybe that it took like me, not maybe calling soon enough, but just all that stuff just weighed, weighed on me. And then, um, you know, once he, once he passed, you know, and then, and then I couldn't even go to his funeral. Like I, I showed up the last, like, you know, once he was already in the ground, I showed up and um, I walked up to the van where they had his uh, mom and dad and brother and sister. And that was uh, brutal for me because I just walked up and, you know, I, was, I had just come off the patrol and, you know, and I said, hey, I started speaking to him in Spanish and I said, um, I just want you to know that your son was never, never alone at any moment. Like when I go, I, I had my hands on him the entire time. I go, he was never like in the dirt, like some, like some trash. I said, we, we took care of him like every minute, every second I go, I, I, 
I gave him his last rites. And then his mom, just like his dad, like his dad reminds me so much of my dad. Like he looks just like him, same build. And, and then he looked at me, he's like, did he suffer? And God, that's like, just like, like more and more tears kept running down my face. And I said, I don't think so. I think it, I think, I think it was, it, it went pretty fast. I said, but I couldn't tell. And I said, I thought I did everything I could to, to, I said, well, all the guys did what we could to save his life. And I, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry that, that we couldn't. And, um, his brother and sister said, thank you very much. And, but I mean, what could I say to his mom and dad? Like at that point, other than like, you know, I, that's all I could just do is reassure them that I, yeah. like I, he went in peace and that I, you know, I, I didn't let him go without giving him his last rites. I think that is very powerful. Like the fact that you had to, I mean, going through that is, I can't imagine I can see you like reliving it right now. Just talking about it. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything you could have said to his family that is going to make them feel any better. I think that like, they're going to, they're going to suffer and they're going to feel the pain and you felt it and you feel it still. And something that you're going to, you're going to have to re- remember as part of your life. Um, I think it's obviously very important to you and you saying that you gave him his last rights and that you were there for him throughout the entire, it's very important to you and you did that. And I think that by it being important to you and then like you did that for, for with your faith and with God and the fact that like, like the family knows that you were there the whole time. I think that is, yeah. I think that is what's important in this, in this. And the fact that like you're recognizing where it's not that you or the people that you worked with failed anything. Cause I don't think anyone failed. I think everyone, it sounds like everyone did their, everything they could, but you're recognizing certain right. things that were, were broken in the, in the process and right. in the future, hopefully that's why people checking equipment, we need to check equipment, certain things, and make, yeah. maintain our stuff because we don't know when the situation is going to arise or we're going to need it. You know, like you yeah, said, and there was like all the stuff that's breaking was, down. Yeah. And there was like spots like during the process when we were doing like, like the, 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 our specialty unit, like the guys were brand new, like they had just become EMTs. So, like, this was one of their first calls to get. And I mean, this is like the last call that you want to be. Well, on anybody, yeah, you know, any kind of person, if someone's like injured like this way, and they were fumbling with the like or, and the oxygen tanks, I remember. And the guy next to me um, was calm as a cucumber. Man, he was like, "Hey," he goes, "Gosh, what did he say?" He said something like, "Settle the f down and do what you were trained to do. Settle down." And like he kind of like set the tone for like the rest of the process right. and like, you know, because everyone was like flailing. Like, I mean, you, you know, this is one of our brothers like in, in, you know, hurt so, so badly. And of course everyone's, you know, jumping over each other to try to like do what they can. And I think that's and, different. Um, like when we, we deal with things, because if it was somebody that wasn't, a, wasn't one of your, the people that you work with, right. right. Wasn't a police officer or wasn't a border patrol agent. It, and yeah. like, we know, we know how to handle these situations. Like we, we do them every day right? You go and you have your tools and this is how you do it and you handle it. And it's by the numbers and we train by the numbers. But then when it's emotional, that's when we talk about like it affecting you and your brain just shuts shuts down. It doesn't know how to function the same way because it's now your emotions are taking over. But, okay. and like you said, you saw this guy and he looks like you're like pissed at him because he's so calm handling right. it. But he, you needed that. Like that was what that was. He was there for a reason and he was there to make sure that everyone could actually do their job. Otherwise, who knows what the scene will look like, you know? And it's, and it's funny you say that because we, we, that's one thing 
that I will give the Border Patrol a lot of credit for is that they uh, solicited a um, a trauma specialist, like someone who shows up like when, you know, and her name is uh, Tanya and uh, she has a PhD. I mean, she's been everywhere. The Houston police, the police officer was shot and killed at 9-11. I mean, she's been everywhere. She's, she you know, she's very experienced in this. And so she held a um like a debriefing for all of us like we all sat down kind of like to re go over everything and and i remember like you know talking about this in front of everybody and, and i was the first one to go and i was angry and i was pissed i was like beyond pissed yeah and i was still like hold harboring that and then i looked over at the guy and i said and then i like i, I couldn't even look at him i pointed to him and i said and this guy over here i go he's he's acting like he don't give a f about what's going on and I said, and here we are trying to save save our friend, and he's acting like this. And you know, here I was like dogpiling on him, you know, like not even knowing what his situation was. But then it was his turn to speak, so he went after me. And for some people, this might be something that uh, maybe they don't believe, maybe they don't um, comprehend or whatnot. But to me, it all made sense. He said, so he was the first. Um, EMT to touch him, the guy that was next to me, the guy that I was angry at for not reacting. So he said when he touched him, when he got there, and he had been an EMT, he had been an EMT for a while already, so he's he had experience. And he said he was already gone when I got there. And he said, I he this is exactly what he said in front of all of us. And he said, and he's a and he's a Christian, he's a Christian, and he said, when I got there and I put my hand on him, I said, I felt something or somebody he goes. And before he said it, he said, whether you choose to believe it or not is up to you. He goes, I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. I'm just telling you what I felt and what I heard. And he said, he felt some, someone put a hand on him and say, it's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. And he felt that that was the fallen agent that had already like passed. He said, because he said that, um, due to like his injuries and he and him getting there that it, it was beyond bad. And he said that, and when he said that to me, like he, he really like released me from my anger that I was harboring towards him because the whole yeah. time he was still like doing everything he was trained to do to save him, regardless of what he had thought he had heard and what he felt and what he already knew with his, with his training that he had passed, he still did it anyway. And that let me off the hook, like, like not being angry at him. And that really like helped me. And then uh, just talking to Tanya and, and uh, dealing, working through like the trauma of it, you know, and, and, um, and even on my own, I've had counseling on my own, you know, other on other issues. And, you know, I think I had to touch on it once and like, like on a personal level, just to make sure that I was okay with that. And I think that's the part that I think, where all of this ultimately heads is like, I think that agencies now, um, I don't know. I just, I, it's just so looked down upon to like take care of ourselves mentally. But the thing is that, you know, there's a book that I had to read because I had to get some pretty like intense therapy. It's called, uh, I think it's called EMDR, um, therapy. It's like, yeah, um, I've heard of that. If you're, are you familiar with it? The rapid eye movement stuff. Is that what that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and they have these things that they put in your hand and stuff. And I had to do it. And the and the guy that came up with it, I think the book's called The Body Keeps Score. And I think 
there's no better title than that. Like being in law enforcement, it doesn't matter. Like from the moment you suit up to the moment that you end up, you end your career, your mind is recording every, every little instance of everything you've ever done. And the thing is that when you come home, like now you're expected to be like, just like a regular person, like, right. and, and just get along with your kids and your significant other and act like all of that stuff never even bothered you. But the thing is that now you've, you're carrying a lot of stuff inside your head. Yeah. Like I can like hear like that. I just like imagine myself at this, at this group and hearing like this guy speaking about it. And I'm just, it's, it sounds like a, it's almost sounds like a movie, like what you're, the way you're saying it, but it's I feel like emotional about it too. You know, that yeah. I think it's crazy. And then every time you, when you mention like these stories, my mind um, without even thinking about it, my mind starts jumping to things that like I've, seen and gone through right and it's like it's like like you said like it's like your mind doesn't forget um i can't imagine going through that like being that close to someone and losing someone that way and i i think that's i i don't know i like i want to like i i thank you for sharing that i mean i really appreciate you sharing that oh yeah yeah um we are getting, we are pretty long here. I know. I hope, I hope everyone sticks like stuck around to hear that, that story. And I'm going to try to emphasize the fact that yeah. they need to stick around here because, because I think it's important. And the fact that it's important to the debriefs after the fact are important. And we're just barely starting that ourselves at our department. That's something that's really important right. to do. I think that we need those things. I think that we need to recognize that people like I've had guys come up to me and say, Hey, we did this debrief. We were forced to do it. I didn't want to go. I, and they co they tell me, I'm glad they forced me to go because everybody needs to do it. And it's and I, how important it is. Yeah. And let me touch on that before we like wrap up. And uh, is that I think that if you don't do that, you're going to let all of these things that you have bottled up inside you manifest in broken relationships, divorces, um, drug, alcohol, abuse, um, you name it. Like not only just, the substance stuff, but also the way that you handle yourself in public around people and that those, you can't expect to go through all these things in this career and not have scars from it. You have to deal with it. You have to like, um, resolve things that put, you know, maybe sometimes desensitize things. And I'm not saying like, forget them or, but in my case, we had to do a lot of work where we changed the emotion behind a lot of things that I had felt as a kid and all the, the abuse and um, violence that I didn't expose to, you know, yeah. and a lot of it, you know, was a lot, a lot of guilt carrying around a lot of guilt. Like somehow all that stuff was my fault. And that's all the EMDR yeah. stuff, right? Like changing yeah. the emotion, right? You know? Changing the emotion related to the incident. Yeah. yeah. And believe it or not, man, the, the mind is a powerful, beautiful thing. Like when I went in there to have that done, I, I was the most pessimistic person. I told her, I said, I'm probably the least person that this should be ever done on this. Like, Cause I don't believe in any of this stuff. I don't think any of this stuff is real. And within five, 10 minutes of it, like I felt like we had fractured the inside of like my brain, like to get in deep to things that I didn't even know were like in there. Yeah. And it really helped me and it really helped me get to a better place to be a better father for my kids. And hopefully in the future have, you know, longer relationships and be in healthier ones. Yeah, that's good. I think it's important too. So that's, I was going to ask you what two things, a, I want any advice you'd give to young guys going into the career, which is kind of what you touched on, like handling the situation and like getting help for it. But if you want to add anything else, like any advice 
or anyone that's going into the border patrol or wants to be in the border patrol. That's the first thing. And then I want to talk about a little bit about your business and what you're doing now. So my, my advice to be anyone to be um, coming into this is, is you're going to need a good like base, a, new, a good foundation to like fall back on. Like you, you're, you're, I kind of think of it like those cars that are really good looking when they get into the destruction derby arena, they look a little rough, but they all run and they're all great. They don't have a single scratch on them. By the time you're done, that first round, like you, you are going to need people to put the wheels back on, put the door back on, like straighten dents out. Like, and I think for, for that, you need to, you know, your mom and dad in your life, a good, a good girl or a guy in your life. You need to have positive people. You need to have people that not just people that are willing to listen, but people that are also going to hold you to some accountability for your person and to like, you know, push you not necessarily mandate that you do something for yourself you want people that elevate you that that, that support you doing things for yourself personally and, and 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 i tell you like even as a new new police officer or new board agent like going to counseling is is not going to make you any weaker it's not going to make you some sort of like a mindless person or a weak person and it's taking nothing absolutely away from you like if you need to get help get it because I used to think just like you guys that are going in that I'll never need that type of help. I'll never come up against something like that. And, uh, it's not true. Eventually you will need help, whether it be personally for the job and don't be afraid to seek it because it will make your life so much easier. Take this advice and don't be afraid to seek out help. And and I'm sure a lot of agencies now, whether they offer it within the agency, some some of them offer it like through the insurance programs right. like, that you can get like a couple of sessions. And believe me, even if it's just a few, like don't hesitate to do it because the longer you let li- you let something like that linger inside of you, the more destructive it's going to be, and the harder and the more work you're going to have to do to get it out and and have a have somewhat of a normal life when you're done. And lastly, to anybody new, this job should not define you. You, when you put on the uniform and badge, if if that's all you have in life, you're missing a lot of things in your life. Because when you hang it up, there's you you need to be your own person, and I think that is one of the biggest things that I have going for myself as we transition into this topic about like when I hung up my uniform, like as I get all the retirement things that I have in my house and all the memorabilia. They're fun. They were great. Like I love every minute of it. I laugh about them. I, I get sad about them sometimes. But the thing is that I, I understand that that part of my life is over. Like it, right. it doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. Like my life now is consistent of being my dad's, my, my, my kid's dad, you know, making pancakes in the morning, taking them to school, you know, helping with homework. And when that's done, I have me time. And me time consists of going in my shop and working with, um, my new CNC plasma table that I have that made that sign for you that we talked about. And uh, I, I do a lot of work with um, like the VFW American legions. Like I donate a lot of like my pieces for maybe raffles or stuff like that. And that's cool. Um, you know, I, I mean, yeah. So I just, those are things that I'd like to do now, you know? So, yeah. So your company name, company's name is, you want to say it Milagro? Milagro, yeah, Milagro metalworks. Okay. Instagram and Facebook for those. And you make, so you're a welder. You told me you're a welder, right? Yeah, I, I can do some welding, but majority of what we, what 
are all custom signs, like signs. I mean, and brackets, things for like old pickups. We can do just about anything. Like if you have an idea, and if it, if it can start out as a flat piece of steel, we can make it. And so on Instagram, your sign is—is is it Milagro Metalworks or is it something else? I thought it was something else. Um, I'm not sure if it's on my Instagram. Um, what is that? I have to send you. A, Let me look at. I wish I, wanna, I, could, I wanna look at it real quick because I want to make sure we say it right. Here's the. Uh, here's my card. Here's the card that I have, and then on the back, this is the QR code. I wouldn't even know how to upload something like that. Oh, it is Milagro Metalworks on there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so on Instagram, Milagro Metalworks. If you go on and check out all the stuff that he's doing. He's got um, signs for eight different agencies, different companies, uh, like you said, like your organizations that you're donating to. Um, yeah. And the signs are amazing. Like I'm watching these things being cut, and I'm like, oh man, I kind of want it now. I want another one. Like it's like <laughs> I want to still, I want to. <laughs> can I modify? You know, I'm like, oh man, yeah, I want to do do more. But yeah, but they're really cool. So yeah. it, you get like, does it feel like therapeutic being able to go out there in the shop and like work? Oh, it it is to me like. Um, it's something like it kind of takes me back to being kind of like very, a lot younger with my dad. Um, I wanted to be a welder like full time. Like, I mean, I wanted that to be my career, but my dad wouldn't let me because he's like, no, this is not, you know, I guess he just was afraid that I would fall into like some manual labor job and he didn't want me to do that. And he goes, I want you to do something else. So he only showed me very little like how to do it. He wouldn't show me full blown like how to do it. So everything I've learned about welding, I've kind of taught myself like I took it in shop like in high school. But it's always been like, if I have to point out something that I'm passionate about, it's probably working with steel and powder coating and just watching it change. I think taking something that's blank, turning it into something, and then, um, you know, grinding it down and resurfacing it, like all of that process, I don't know, it just does something. Like, I, I see why my dad always said that, like, you know, doing stuff and finishing things give you like a big sense of accomplishment. Yeah, you know, absolutely. No matter how, how small. And something that I've learned is that, like, and I guess you could apply it to anything in your life is that, when you start out at something, you're going to suck. You're going to suck at it. Like if you start at something, you can't be afraid to start at something because you end up, you might end up being like amazing at it. Like, and you're the only person like that's holding yourself back. Like you're the fear of failing. And you know, like I've said before, like to me, the biggest killer of dreams, like, you know, so like, yeah, we hold ourselves back all the time. Yeah, you know what's funny so, is all, like making it to me. I'm like, oh, I wish I could know how to work with metal. I like, can do that. Like I've done little things here and there with like wood and stuff, but nothing like crazy. And I think yeah. it's funny because like you talk about little things that make you feel like, oh, wow, I did accomplish something. Like just getting this like yeah. the podcast on like the platform yeah. was like to me. I was like, wow, I got actually got it on there. It was really cool. And um, yeah, hopefully, like, eventually, hopefully, this episode is better than like the first you know ten yeah, episodes exactly. you know, as they go. Well, yeah, like. Like my, my first start into the CNC world was me like where it almost ended where it started. So I had my table out in the garage. I couldn't like, nobody told me how to do anything. So I'm out there for two weeks. Like I'm out there 14. I think I caught, I clocked it at like 12 hours a day, like out there literally on the computer trying to get it to work. And I can't figure out how to get it to work. So finally I, when all else fails, I, I lay down like flat, like, like crucified on the table. And I'm like, God, baby Jesus, like, just help me. Like, all I want is just help me like to figure this out. Like, I, I, I don't want to sell it. Like I want to do this. And, and if you help me, I'll do my best at it. And sure enough, like the next day, like I finally, like it just clicked. Like I, I saw a video on YouTube and like the guy said to do something. And then it just like, poof, yeah. like, that. I'm like, are you kidding me? So 
That's great. That's so funny. That's funny how our brains work and how how we, we just need those sometimes need patience. You know, yeah. like someone bring patience upon us. That's yeah. funny. Well, I think you're doing great work, and I really appreciate you telling us your story today. Um, if you ever want to come back, I, I mean, we can talk. We can talk about anything. Like this is amazing. Yeah. I know. Like I think we can. My whole goal is like give people the idea that it's okay. It's it's okay that we've gone through something and to recognize that and hopefully come out and how you deal with it, like how you work through these pain and get on the other side and and be successful. And successful, it could be anything, but just being like mentally able to handle your life and be there for your family, be there for your kids, be there for your parents, and um, just do this life with you know with, with everything and we deal with. Think, and I think right now during the current climate, not just in law enforcement, but in general, like we have, you know, kids that are, you know, struggling so much right now. And I can tell you like from experience, like I'll say this because I can say it now. Uh, age 16, I threw a lot of grief in my family, like, like the things that I touched on. And before my career even took off, like a year, at, I was at the highest point of my life. I, I was a, a avid athlete in high school and things just started to pile up. And I thought that there'd be no out, you know, went through a breakup at school. And I thought that the answer to that was to end my life. And I attempted to end my life at the age of 16, like ended up going, you know, overdosing on, you know, pills and getting taken to the local, you know, emergency room, getting my stomach pumped, like being in the ICU for like, you know, 48 hours. And that one event like could have cost me my entire life like that one thing like and you know thank god because when i woke up like it changed our family like for good forever like it it uh it opened my mom's eyes onto like the things that that were going wrong in our life my dad my my sister my brothers my older brothers like and it also gave me um insight onto how much people really loved me within my family and not you know i didn't take into account like how many people that I would hurt and thinking that that would be the answer. Right. And I'm here to tell you those who are watching, like your struggle, no matter what your age is, like you're not alone. Like I've been, I've been in those dark times. I've walked in those dark clouds and um, you, you, as long as you want to, you can, I mean, there's people that will help you. There's people that will like empower you. Um, difficult times aren't forever. I know it might feel like it. And sometimes that's, that's, that's why people decide to do that. And they, they don't, they don't, they lose hope. Yeah. If there's anybody in this world, that should have lost hope. It was me, a little kid who had, you know, who, who suffered sexual abuse at a very, very young age. Um, tempted suicide at 16, survived that and went on to have a great 25 year, a career in law enforcement and raised two beautiful kids and to retire and then to enjoy my life. And I can tell you like one bad decision will ruin your life. And especially like, this is what I learned from that at that time is that someone once told me, a doctor told me, she said, you know, when people decide to do this, she's like, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. The problem will not be there forever. But when you decide to take your own life, it is forever. Yeah, absolutely. And you affect so many people around you. And I can tell you personally that, I was spared and I feel that me sharing this right now with anybody who's listening, um, just know that you can make it no matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what the struggle, like there, there can't be any heavier things than the things that I witnessed and was exposed to at such a young age that 
I couldn't get over the mind is strong. If you, if you go into people that, that are trained to help you, trust me, they will get you back right on track. It may hurt. And I, and I equate getting myself straight to house and lighting it on fire and walking in, knowing that the house is already on fire. But let me tell you, when all those ashes fall down around you, you will have burned off the pieces that you don't no longer need and the pieces and you will rebuild yourself into the pieces that you need to put together. And I think that that is the one thing that people need to realize is don't lose hope. Don't lose ever hope in yourself. Don't ever forget that there's people that love you no matter what, what goes on in your life. You have a lot of people that love you will do anything for you and don't ever shut yourself down from those people. That's great, Carlos. I really appreciate you saying that. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to exactly how you said that quote about the ashes, and I'm gonna have to write that down and put it in there because that's that's really good. And, and if you're not already doing this, I think that you should be telling your story to as many people as possible because it's not just like law enforcement. I think that you should be out there, and I think that people will listen and people need it. And that's and I think you, I, I mean I really appreciate you having this conversation this morning and you taking the time oh, out of your day to do this. Man. So if you ever need anything, I'm here. I'm here to talk, and um, hopefully uh, we can do this again because this is fun. I I really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, I'm gonna close this. I'm gonna close this out. Anything else you wanted to add before we close out? No, man. Just keep faith and um, just keep working, man. Nothing, nothing that's good is easy. That's what my dad always tells me. My dad says, like, if it's worth it, it's gonna cost you. And and you, you yourself, whoever's watching this as a person, are worth it. So put the time into yourself. Like you're worth it. doesn't matter what anybody says you're worth it. You can overcome anything and no one owes you anything. If you believe that you're a victim, you will always stay your as a victim. You're not a victim. You're a survivor. You're strong. Believe in yourself and just keep one foot in front of the other. No matter how tired you are, no, no matter how heavy the problem is one foot in front of the other, you don't have to run, but just one foot in front of the other and you'll get there. I like that. Keep pushing through, keep pushing through it. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, Carlos. And that, uh, if you want to find Carlos, you can find him at uh, Milagro Metalworks on Instagram. Yep. Um, and mm-hmm. um, you can t- touch base with him there. He'll make you a really cool sign. Trust me. And uh, if you want to touch base with me on uh, Instagram, it's AP underscore Sturgeon or uh, Let's Grab a Cup. And you can find me on my website at SturgeonWellness.com or Let's Grab a Cup.com. Uh, we're going to hit this uh, closeout music. Thanks, St. Carlos. I really appreciate it, man. Let me uh, appreciate it. You got this music thing. I always uh, takes me a minute. <laughs> the technology alright here we go have a good day guys thank you thank you